Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Children of the corn. When we think of politicians, we too often see them as great, even mighty figures, seemingly larger than life. That's because of how the media projects them and far too often protects them. But in times like these, times of plague, crisis, massive failures of institutions, and yes, of death, we began to see them somewhat differently. For some, the spell is broken. We see them as they are, flawed beings, driven by ambitions and hungers for power. It ain't a pretty picture. U.S. President Trump's recent so-called order, it sounds like more of a threat, to reopen schools has fallen like a lead balloon, ordering parents to send their children into a burning building with no masks. And although the coronavirus is invisible, it is burning, bringing the nation to its knees with its effects of bone-wracking sickness and tens of thousands of deaths. For these aren't the children of the wealthy. They're the children of the poor, working classes, the children of the common people. And does anyone believe this dude cares about them? Children, these children, are little more than recess monkeys being used in a grand experiment, and they are just as expendable. For this is about politics the politics of illusion to show control when nothing could be more out of control. These children are extras in a campaign commercial to support the re-election of a politician who couldn't care less. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. In France, young men who look black or Arab are 20 times more likely to be stopped by police. That's according to the country's human rights ombudsman. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. Two young men are acting as my guides in this public housing complex in a mixed neighborhood in the east of Paris. The 22-year-olds take me to a plaza where they used to hang out. Jeremy Bardache says they were constantly harassed by the police. 
I'd go out in the morning. My daily routine was to eat, sleep, and get stopped by the police. I thought that was normal, that it was like that for everyone. Bardache and his friend Lucas Sviatek are now part of a class action lawsuit. Slim Benashur is the lawyer representing them. We're suing the states in many, many cases to a challenge police brutality and racial discrimination through litigation. Benashur says it can be difficult to prove because France does not keep statistics on race or religion since the Second World War when statistics made it easier for the authorities to round up Jews and deport them. Benashur says he gets that, but you can't fight discrimination if you don't measure it. So we're in a catch-22 because of the French Republic principles and because we're all the same, we shouldn't talk about discrimination. We tend to think that we don't have to do the statistics. The statistics is too American. A recent Human Rights Watch report titled They Talk to Us Like We're Dogs documents how baseless and repetitive targeting of minorities is driving a deep wedge between communities and police while doing nothing to deter crime. La première fois, in the video, a 13-year-old says he was first stopped at the age of 9 or 10. I didn't think police were supposed to pat down 10-year-olds, he says. One plan to stop such abuses is to require the police to give out a receipt every time they stop someone. Mathieu Zagrodsky teaches law enforcement at the University of Versailles. That was a way for people who were disproportionately stopped in search to prove with those receipts that, for instance, they were stopped in search five times in the same week. Police unions have always opposed the measure. Zagrodsky says it's been difficult for any government to reform the police. Law enforcement is a profession that is in a state of crisis in France. Zagrodsky says after the 2015 terrorist attacks and the long and violent Yellow Vest protest movement, the police have been under huge strain. Lawyer Benashur says it seems they no longer serve the public. The police has two goals, chase and fine delinquents, and the guardian of our freedom and rights. This second mission is completely forgot. The culture of the police in France is a culture of warriors. Back in the east of Paris, the young men are watching a video they shot of white officers manhandling black teenagers. That happened to Lucas Sviatek when he was just 16, and he says it's left him distrustful of the police. I felt really lost, he says, because the people who were supposed to be protecting us were instead hitting and insulting us. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Okay, so Fort Hood, as well as all other military bases in, in the, on the globe, should be closed. Immediately, I know this won't happen, but it's uh, my VGQ um, in the search for Vanessa Vanessa Guillen or Gullian, um, a Hispanic, you know, non-white Hispanic uh, young woman, PFC, private first class. Um, Her family had been asking for at least two months for the base to shut down and the army to step in to help for her after she complained to them about being sexually harassed by a white male. They did not. And while um, a special team went in to uh, look for her on the base, they um, uh, uncovered the remains of at least five other people who had been missing for some years. I do know there was another PFC, um, uh, non-white black female, 
that um, I'm not sure if it was Fort Hood, but it was an Army base, and her name starts with an L, and God forgive me because I can't remember. Um, Johnson, Lavina Johnson? Uh, I think it was Lavina, yep. Um, they didn't act on her behalf as well. Um, they also ruled her death a suicide, even though she had burns and was choked and some other stuff and raped. The disappearance and murder of Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen has sparked an outpouring of stories from mainly female service members with one common thread. Like Guillen, they experienced sexual harassment and abuse in the ranks, but felt that the military's reporting system wasn't built to help them. In a moment, Nick Schifrin speaks with two experts about what needs to change. But first, he has some background on Guillen and the stories of women in their own words who are part of the hashtag I am Vanessa Guillen movement. Vanessa Guillen was 20 years old when she died. Her family says she's always wanted to be in the military to protect the country, but they say the military failed to protect her. Guillen told them that she'd been harassed by a higher-ranking soldier, but because of a culture of fear at the base and in the Army, she felt too afraid to report it. She went missing on April 22nd. Her body was found more than two months later. She'd been struck by a hammer, burned, and partially dismembered. The police zeroed in on the man the family says was her harasser, Aaron Robinson. When they approached him, he died by suicide. Outside Fort Hood, there's a memorial for Guillen. And in Houston, a march calling for justice and accusing the military of failing to defend its female service members. On Thursday, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper admitted the military could do better. We've made a lot of progress over 10 years. But nowhere near we need to be. Uh, we need to get to zero tolerance of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And we need to make sure that everybody in our ranks uh, knows where they can go to for help, where they can find help. Congress has a major piece of legislation called the Military Justice Improvement Act that would remove the chain of command from the decision to prosecute sexual harassment and abuse claims. But this moment is different. The viciousness of the crime and a social media campaign with the hashtag I am Vanessa Guillen has highlighted what countless female veterans say, that Guillen's story, sadly, is not unique. We spoke to a half dozen veterans, women victims of sexual harassment or assault, who say they were initially silenced. But thanks to Guillen, they are silenced no more. My name is Joanna Sweat, and I'm a United States Marine Corps veteran. My name is Tiffany Suma. I was an, or I am an Army veteran. My name is Renee Yesman. My name is Stephanie Flores. My name is Ashley Martinez. My name is Georgina um, Butler. Two months into my uh, duty assignment, I was raped by another soldier. I was sexually assaulted by someone I knew. In October of 2016, I was at a party off base with some of my friends, and then I just remember waking up on my front yard. I was wearing brown sweatpants and a tan army t-shirt and the next evening I woke up and I was not wearing that and I had uh, blood on me and I was uh, covered in vomit. And my first ship, uh, I personally experienced sexual harassment from my direct supervisor, right? And it was a lot of uh, sexist comments, a lot of um, sexual language and comments uh, towards me. I didn't even know about um, the assault, the act, or anything. That's how blacked out I was. They made me actually call the male that they found his DNA. It took me an hour to build up the courage to even pick up the phone. I was scared. I was crying. They had all that evidence. 
evidence of him saying, yes, I, yes, I do remember that night. Yes, I did do that. And they still, for some reason, said there was not enough evidence. I chose, like Vanessa, not to report it. Like a lot of people say, the only difference between me and her story is that I walked away alive. With Vanessa Guillen's story, I think I saw myself in her. I was a young Hispanic enlisted soldier. I was also too scared to tell my mother my attacker's name. I went to my chain of command and I told them what happened and I was immediately told um, to bury this. They made me feel like I wasn't a victim, that it was me that initiated it by going to a party. And they kicked me out for having PTSD and he stayed in. The first thing that they told me was like, well, you are new to the military. No one is going to believe you or nothing is going to get done. The first questions that I were asked were, were you drinking? How much were you drinking? And what were you wearing? I ended up dropping the case because I didn't feel comfortable prosecuting my attacker because I didn't have faith in the system. My two friends thought that it was appropriate to go speak to one of our school instructors who happened to be on duty that day. He had a very candid conversation with me about how that would negatively affect my life if I were to report such a crime. I would like the what were you wearing to stop? What did you do? Um, because in reality, there's no, there's no way to protect yourself against somebody who has this in their mind to do it. I really started to experience debilitating migraine. Eventually, I was medically discharged because I was unable to perform my daily duties. I still live with the trauma every day. I still go to therapy every week. I'm on a lot of medications to sleep, to have no nightmares, to function normally. I have a service animal. I went to the ER, and that's when I started to just, like, unreal, un reveal a lot of the things that was happening to me, like, a suicide attempt from, with alcohol and pills. I know that we all signed up for and we have to really accept the reality that we may die fighting for this country overseas, but we did not sign up for it to be sexually harassed and sexually abused by our own fellow soldiers who we are supposed to fight alongside. I would really like to see some more accountability. I don't know how it's possible that Vanessa was missing for over a month in an institution where supervisors are supposed to have accountability of their soldiers at all times of day. You can't investigate yourself and that's that's what Fort Hood does. They send the cases back down to the unit to investigate themselves. What a lot of um, the survivors and I have discussed is, is wanting um, a separate civilian entity um, that only deals with military sexual trauma. I shared under the hashtag and hundreds of people have been in my inbox through Facebook and Twitter wanting to share their stories with me. And for a lot of them, it's the first time they've ever shared their story. And you can't demote me you can't kick me out of anything anymore so me using my voice might protect somebody else it's up to you In 1991, the federal government started construction on a new building in Lower Manhattan. But a little digging revealed something unexpected. The remains of 419 black people buried there since the 16 and 1700s. That discovery kicked off a fight between forces who wanted the building to go up and communities who wanted to honor the dead. Those communities eventually won. And now you can visit the African Burial Ground Memorial in Lower Manhattan. 
This week, we're looking at the stories behind the statues, plaques, and memorials that blend into the background for many people. Michael Blakey is a professor of anthropology, Africana studies, and American studies at the College of William and Mary. He was also principal investigator for the analysis of the African burial ground remains. And when I spoke with him earlier, I started by asking him, who were the people buried at that site? They were almost entirely enslaved perhaps 95% of Africans in New York City from the late 17th through the 18th centuries um, were enslaved to do the work of building the city. Which is something I think a lot of Americans don't understand. A lot of Americans generally don't think of New York as one of the capitals of American chattel slavery. How would you describe New York City's role in slavery? It was a a thriving economic uh, center as a village that expanded to become a city which was based essentially on slavery and the products that the enslaved produced and the trade of the enslaved people themselves. Mm-hmm. So the New York, New York was perhaps second only to Charleston, South Carolina, in its involvement in the slave trade. Mm-hmm. All 13 colonies uh, enslaved Africans until uh, the War of Independence began to uh, uh, create emancipation in began to create emancipation in most of those. Emancipation did not come in New York until 1827. The idea we have of a free North versus an enslaved South is something that really has, was quite consciously developed as uh, what uh, I think David Blight calls it, the emancipatory narrative after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Distinguish um, America as a, you know, as a freedom-loving place um, in a war that was fought for unification, but ultimately became also associated with the freeing of of enslaved people in the South. And it's important to remember New York City's role in the chattel slavery system. And going back to the remains of these individuals that were found, I mean, you led a team that examined those remains. How did you even begin to figure out who these individuals were? Because we were interdisciplinary, we understood that these were from specific cultures of Ashanti or uh, Igbo or Tuareg. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some came from perhaps Madagascar. But, you know, DNA is actually very sloppy. Um, it gives you a broad range of possibility. And so it's with all the other kinds of artifacts that we could narrow down uh, to the extent possible, the origins of the people buried there. And could you conclude whether all these people were indeed slaves uh, or were some of them free? I mean, do you have any idea of the personal stories of the people who were buried there? We can only know the general frequency of freed people there. We have interesting stories of freed people in the in 1788 defending the African burial ground against desecration uh, during the doctors' riots. But we don't know which individuals buried in the cemetery were those individuals. What do you think this memorial means, especially in 2020? Memorials are part of what it means to be human. And during slavery, the burial of the dead was very important, keenly important for 
Africans and African-Americans whose humanity, whose very humanity was contested. And as I su suggested, there have been changes for sure in the last 200 years. Mm -hmm. But as we see in 2020, um, there have also been continuities of the disregard for black lives. So these memorials, and the African burial ground is a memorial that celebrates not just death, but the sanctity of black life and the uh, importance of our history. Michael Blakey is a professor of anthropology, Africana studies, and American studies at the College of William and Mary. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. The city of Asheville, North Carolina, is taking a big step to address racial inequality. Last night, local leaders approved a resolution to pave the way for reparations for the black community. From Blue Ridge Public Radio, Matt Bush reports. What shape those reparations will take will be decided over the next year by a commission created by the Asheville City Council. Keith Young is one of the council's two black members. The blood capital that we have banked to spend today to fight for significant change came predominantly not from our allies, but from black men, women, and children who died. The resolution does formally apologize for the city's participation in slavery and the enforcement of past segregation and discriminatory policies. In the last week, two Confederate monuments have been removed from the city's main square where slaves were sold before the Civil War. This new reparations commission will examine many issues from minority home ownership to fully funding public transit and looking at disparities in the education system. But there won't necessarily be payments to the descendants of slaves. Rob Thomas with the Racial Justice Coalition says what the black community in Asheville needs are land and money. They're asking you to look at the facts and seeing like, OK, yeah, this happened, this happened, this many people died, this much money was taken out of the black community. And it would equal this much today. Like, these are facts. Like, we're not asking anybody to accept anything. We're asking for people to do what is right. Asheville is an international tourist destination in the picturesque Blue Ridge Mountains with a renowned arts, food, and beer scene. But decades of gentrification helped fuel that and push out members of the black community. This new reparations commission still has plenty of details to work out, and there is skepticism of what will ultimately happen. Even with the city's progressive reputation, it still has a ways to go to earn the trust of its black residents. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bush in Asheville, North Carolina. White supremacy is the sickness. Today marks day two of the new statewide requirement for everyone to wear a mask or face covering in public. But the measure announced by Governor John Bell Edwards over the weekend is already sparking resistance. For more on masks, and the state of the virus in Louisiana, reporter Rosemary Westwood spoke with Dr. Joseph Cantor of the Louisiana Department of Health, where he's the director of Region 1. Dr. Cantor, thanks for your time. You've said masks are the number one thing we can all do to slow the spread of the virus. Did Governor Edwards wait too long to make masks mandatory? 
It's a challenging situation, and the governor's been clear the whole time that he wants people to wear masks, and he models it really well. I'll tell you, every time we have a meeting with him, he is wearing a mask 100% of the time. Now, the goal in this is not to issue an order. The goal is to get people to wear masks, and because it's become so politicized, there's been a concern that there might be a negative effect to um, issuing the order. That's always been the discussion, not whether or not masking is the right thing to do. So it's really a question of tactics as opposed to desired outcome. Either way, I mean, everyone in this administration has been 100% clear ever since the data was clear that masking is the right thing to do and the most effective and really the cheapest as well way that we're going to stop the spread here. Already we're seeing local leaders say they won't enforce this. Livingston Parish is one, and the governor has promised statewide enforcement will occur. But how worried are you that local leaders and political leaders in the state will fight this requirement? I'm somewhat worried about that. Um, I'm more worried that I think we have more to do to get the message out in general. I don't think we succeed here by convincing local law enforcement to bring down the stick. I think we succeed by getting the message out and bringing the public on board. And when folks see cases rising, when they see Texas and Arizona and Florida blowing up, when they see Alabama, Mississippi, Texas come on, I mean, come online, I think it becomes eventually unavoidable of what we have to do. And that's what I think is going to happen. I think people are going to look around and see what's happening in Texas and Mississippi and come to the recognition that masks are uncomfortable, inconvenient, but what we have to do right now. And what would you say to people who are relying on incorrect information about whether masks work or who see them as an infringement on their rights or, or as a political statement? How are you going to bring those people on board? You know, the best way that we do it is to bring other experts' voice to the forefront, including medical providers, people's primary care physicians, hospital leaders, trying to make as big of a, um, of a tent, so to say, as, as possible so that's not just government officials making the case. But look, it's increasingly becoming less of a politicized issue. Vice President Pence is coming. He has come out very strong in favor of masks. The president himself is now wearing them. I think you see one by one politicians who might have been iffy in in past come on board now with the message. I think we're going to continue to see that happening because it just becomes unavoidable. We're in a real bad place, both statewide and nationally. This, This virus is taking over. We have to get control. I don't think many more people are going to disagree with that. You've said that this isn't going to be a quick fix. It could take weeks to see the cases and the rate of positive tests go down if people start wearing masks. What is your top concern right now for where we're at with the virus, you know, even nationally? Is it hospitalizations or rising deaths or politics? My top concern for Louisiana is that we're at a real inflection point here And, you know, we're not yet at the place that Texas and and Arizona are, Um, but we will get there soon if we don't turn this around. And to talk specifically about hospital capacity, you know, we've already been through 
this once in the New Orleans region where we were really worried about um, exceeding our hospital capacity. Now, thankfully, we responded, we flattened the curve, we, we came together and distanced back then, a couple months ago, and we did not threaten hospital capacity. We're going to have to do the same thing this time around. And I'll tell you, hospital capacity around the state is still in a decent spot, but in, in select regions, namely Lake Charles, Lafayette, Alexandria, it's getting very tight right now. So this is the time to act. And particularly when we look ahead and you know the desire to open schools, um, that's going to increase cases. It's going to have people out in the community with, with spread of virus. And we feel that if we don't turn this around right now, it's not going to be an encouraging set of circumstances in the weeks to come. Dr. Joseph Cantor, the director of Region 1 with the Louisiana Department of Health, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Rosemary. Black babies cost less. This is WKSU News. I'm Sarah Taylor. Summit County is channeling another $2.5 million toward the centering groups that advocates say are one key to saving babies' lives. The issue disproportionately impacts African Americans who have an infant mortality rate more than twice as high as those of non-Hispanic whites. WKSU's Kelly Woodward takes us inside a circle of expectant parents receiving extra support. I want you to use your thighs to stand up. And we still got our keels tight now. Come on, let's stand up. (laughs) Women nearing their due dates lift themselves out of their chairs and squeeze as directed at the Centering Pregnancy Group at Suma's Health Equity Center in Akron. The center is in a zip code that's a hot spot for infant mortality. The issue is a special focus in the full-term First Birthday Greater Akron Collaborative formed in 2017. However, success has been uneven. Preliminary 2019 numbers, which are subject to change, show more than 15 deaths per thousand births for non-Hispanic African Americans in Summit County, up almost two from 2018. We haven't heard from you. Is there one of the discomforts here that's particularly bothering you? During a March meeting before the COVID-19 pandemic, six relaxed expectant parents, including one dad, enjoyed conversation in a circle. So when you're third trimester, that's when your doctor's visits start becoming more frequent? I feel empowered by the knowledge that I'm gaining every two weeks that I come to be a better, better mother, not just for this child, but for my eight-year-old daughter, too. My daughter was seven pounds. 30-year-old Letitia Jeffries says that with her first baby, she was in an unstable relationship and self-centered. She left her own mother to do most of the parenting for the first two years. A common story, according to facilitator Taba Alim. And the first thing they say is, yeah, after I have this baby, I'm going to turn it up. They yeah. call it turning it up. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. <laughs> they turning it up. I mean, they're going out to party and right, drink. Yeah. And, and, and well, you shouldn't do that. You right. know, you, that's the time that's really important when you should be bonding with your child. Things that you could do to help would be like the three breast techniques mm-hmm. we started to start OBGYN Dr. Cheryl Johnson, who is also African-American, answers questions, teaches, and monitors blood pressure and weight. A lot of times in the second trimester, your blood pressure goes down. It's so- two hours with 
patients. I know them by name. I know how many children they have. I know what it took for them to get here. I know who we provide transportation for, who might live in a food desert. And so I get to treat that person holistically. A 2017 study on discrimination in America by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard School of Public Health reported that 22% of African Americans avoided medical care due to concern for racial discrimination. In addition, research shows that black women experience more chronic stress from factors like poverty, racism, and perceived anxiety than white women. This contributes to premature birth, which Dr. Johnson says is the highest risk factor for infant mortality. Maternal stress does cross all socioeconomic statuses, which means that even if I got pregnant now, that um, the infant mortality rate for me mirrors that of all African-American women. Even if there was a Caucasian 18-year-old, her outcome would be better than mine. The group helps mothers like Jeffries cope with the unique stress experienced by black women. I learned a lot of stuff about um, my body, a lot of stuff as being a black woman, things that we go through that other women don't go through. Within the circle, women identify the sources of their stress, according to the clinical director of the Minority Behavioral Health Group, Tania Lodge. And hopefully if we just really understand the impact of oppression on the African-American experience, if we can recognize that that's what's happening in the moment, then we are more likely to be able to do things that's going to be healthy versus isolate and withdraw or refuse or to go to our appointment. A support system is key. We're much smarter together than we are individually. I need everybody to lean in. Community health worker Erica Malone and the entire circle are now meeting virtually following the outbreak of COVID-19. Meanwhile, Letitia Jeffries has welcomed a healthy daughter, True Maya Walker. I'm Kelly Woodward, 89.7 WKSU. Population control. Population control. Population control. Population control. Population control. New research suggests the world's population will peak at 9 billion. That's much lower than had been previously predicted because global birth rates are declining more rapidly than expected. Scientists at the University of Washington say nearly every country will have shrinking and ageing populations by 2100, with huge social, political and economic consequences. Our global affairs correspondent, Naomi Grimley, reports. According to this study, countries such as Spain, Italy, Poland, Japan and Thailand will see their populations halve in size by the turn of the century. Even China could see a 25% drop. Women's education and better access to contraception are thought to be the big drivers. But Africa should buck the trend with the population there trebling in size by 2100. Nigeria's population could reach 800 million, putting it second only to India as the world's most populous nation. Not only will this affect geopolitics, it will also mean countries have to rethink their immigration, tax and childcare policies. 
And with the over 80s outnumbering the under 5s by a ratio of 2 to 1, there will have to be much better provision for old age. That was Naomi Grimley. See, it used to be we could beat up minorities and nobody cared. It's the reason a lot of us joined the force. Hey, Mitch, you want to go down and arrest some homeless people but not be able to beat up any minorities? No, thank you. Yeah, no, I think we're good. Wandering cops, that's the phrase sometimes used to describe problem police officers who are let go by one department only to get another policing job somewhere else. For decades, reformers have been trying to stop that cycle. And as NPR's Martin Costi reports, the effort has been re-energized by the George Floyd protests. The most notorious case of this is still the Cleveland officer who shot a 12-year-old boy playing with a pellet gun, Tamir Rice. Here's CNN back in 2014. At his previous job at the Independence Police Department, Officer Lohman's personnel records show he was in the process of being fired. And there have been other news stories about cops like this. So John Rappaport thought it was time for a closer look at the phenomenon of wandering officers. Is this just a collection of anecdotes or is there really something systemic going on here? Rappaport is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He and a colleague crunched the employment records of 98,000 law enforcement officers in Florida. And we find when we compare wandering officers to either rookie officers or other officers who have moved agencies but never been fired, um, that they do um, behave worse and that they're about 50 percent more likely to incur subsequent termination or moral character violation complaints. So what's the solution? Roger Goldman has a suggestion. For the last 40 years, Really, my focus is both professionally and advocacy have been in uh, this area of decertifying law enforcement officers. Decertification, basically stripping a cop of the license to be a cop. It used to be that most states didn't have a decertification process, but that was before Goldman got involved. He was inspired to act in the early 1980s after hearing about the case of a St. Louis area officer who'd killed a man he said was trying to steal his car. The officer, it turned out, had previously been fired for misconduct by another department. And I said, this can't be. And out of that, I was able, working with the local ACLU, to get a law passed in Missouri that, for the first time, had decertification. The idea spread, and today 45 states have some version of decertification. But the system is not airtight. The University of Virginia's Rachel Harmon studies the legal regulation of policing. No state can so easily create a federal decertification database that prevents officers who have a history of misconduct from wandering from one state to another state. That's something where you do need national coordination. There is a privately run interstate database, the National Decertification Index, but participation is voluntary. The man who runs it, Michael Bakar, says most police departments never even check it when they hire new officers. One of the issues is that they just don't know about it. You know, we're running this thing on a shoestring budget since the federal government doesn't provide any money. So now there's a growing consensus in Washington that the feds should get involved. The police reform bill recently passed by House Democrats would make police departments show that their officers are duly certified and make reports to a national police misconduct registry. You know, the old saying in law enforcement is nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Jim Pasco is executive director of the National Fraternal Order of Police. He says police understand that there's a crisis of confidence right now, and his organization wants to lean forward to find ways to rebuild trust. Bottom line here is we do not oppose decertification where it's warranted. 
What we would oppose is decertification without due process. The devil is always in the details. For instance, should police chiefs be forced to decertify cops who quit before they're fired? Should officers be decertified if they've been disciplined but acquitted by a court? Rachel Harmon says we have to keep in mind just how much variation there is between the states when it comes to decertification. We cannot solve this problem simply by national legislation. We do need states actively involved in this process. And in fact, Roger Goldman, the man who's been campaigning for this for 40 years, says in the last few weeks he's had a new wave of calls from around the country from people asking his advice on how to tighten their state's decertification systems. Martin Costi, NPR News. You're a cop. You can torment freely and see me valley, then seize the Audi, then beam proudly. Turn a routine traffic stop to your season finale when you're a cop. You can shoot a motherfucker by the trailer park. Plenty evidence, sure defense will be razor sharp. Then turn around and taste a perp for the lazy perp. I'm a cop. When the transcript was released of the body camera footage that showed the police killing of George Floyd, Floyd kept telling the officers as many as 20 times he could not breathe. One officer, Thomas Lane, a rookie, is heard on video asking whether Floyd might be in a state of excited delirium. It's a condition that some say can cause extreme agitation and bursts of strength. But the Floyd case is not the first time excited delirium was cited in the death of a person when law enforcement was involved. Elisa Roth reports. In early February, Ramsey County Sheriff's deputies were called to a house in Little Canada because a woman was having a seizure and a panic attack. The woman's name was Nakia Moody. According to the police report, Moody, who was 37, became unresponsive after the deputies restrained her and put her in handcuffs. She was taken to Regents Hospital, where she later died. The Ramsey County Medical Examiner ruled the cause of death as probable complications of excited delirium with recent cocaine use. The Sheriff's Department didn't respond to questions about the incident before we produced this report. To begin with, she was having a medical emergency. What is the point of restraining her? I don't really feel like she was a danger to anyone or, or to herself at that moment. She was just, she was needing medical help. Her sister, Patrice Stanbury, is skeptical of the diagnosis, and she's not the only one. Law enforcement and others say excited delirium usually happens to people who have been using drugs or who have a serious mental illness. It's seen when a person is held in a chokehold, hogtied, or tasered. And skeptics say law enforcement often hides behind the diagnosis in wrongful death suits. The associations representing emergency doctors and medical examiners say excited delirium is real. But the American Medical Association and the American Psychological Association do not recognize it. Douglas Zipes is a professor of cardiology at the medical school at Indiana University. I do think that um, excited delirium, as has been used in so many of the defense cases, um, often ends up as a wastebasket term, uh, very ill-defined. He's been an expert witness for the plaintiffs in a number of lawsuits involving the condition. He's not examined the documents in Nikia Moody's death. Excited delirium has long been a part of law enforcement training in Minnesota and elsewhere. Eric Misselt is interim executive director of the Post Board. He remembers being told during his own training to be on alert when somebody showed signs of the condition. This person's probably, their, their vital signs and everything are, are going to tank, potentially, and you need to get medical uh, attention going immediately after once the situation's under control. Uh, anticipating that uh, they're going to go downhill quickly. 
Excited delirium is among the topics the Post Board requires for law enforcement training in Minnesota. I have not seen the body cam footage from the day Nakia Moody died, but her sister has, and she thinks the officers were too aggressive. And there was two officers that restrained her. So I think that kind of propelled whatever state that she was in that caused her to go into that cardiac arrest. Stanbury is planning to file a lawsuit about it. But the diagnosis may come up in a far more high-profile case. According to the criminal complaint against Derek Chauvin, the officer who killed George Floyd, another one of the officers talked about it the day Floyd died. According to a transcript, Thomas Lane told Chauvin, I'm worried about excited delirium or whatever, and asked whether they should turn Floyd on his side. Chauvin's attorneys may argue that excited delirium contributed to Floyd's death. For NPR News, I'm Elisa Roth. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. COVID test wait times are rising, some tech stocks are falling, and we're focused on one area of the economy that's actually benefited from the pandemic, gun sales. Usually when we hear about a spike in firearm sales, it's driven by a fear of new gun control laws, often in the wake of a mass shooting. But America hasn't had a large-scale shooting since the pandemic began, and gun stores have rarely been busier. Check out these numbers. Background checks in June were up 136% from June of 2019. In Georgia, that figure is more than 300%. In Illinois, gun permit applications for the first two weeks of June were five times higher than in the same time period last year. Overall, there were 7.8 million background checks for gun purchases between March and June. And over that period, Smith & Wesson stock was up threefold. It's worth noting, according to a trade association survey, 40% of these gun sales are going to first-time buyers. Normally, that figure would be closer to 25%. So what's happening? Part of it is that some Americans are just freaked out as the pandemic wreaks havoc on our way of life. There are also people who have increased safety fears in the wake of defund the police movements and rising gun violence rates in certain large cities. And then there's President Trump's unpopularity 
which increases the likelihood that the White House could soon be occupied by somebody much more sympathetic to gun control arguments. To dig into this deeper, we are joined now by Zusha Ellenson, a Wall Street Journal reporter who also is writing a book about the AR-15 rifle. So, Zusha, in the time that you've been covering kind of the firearms industry, have you ever seen a spike like we've seen over the past few months outside of after a mass shooting event? No, we've absolutely never seen anything like this. I would even say it's much different than after a mass shooting event. What you've seen in the past with the biggest sales spikes is that people run out and buy AR-15 style rifles. And this is because it comes after a mass shooting. Politicians call for banning the AR-15, and a lot of people who want to get one before they get banned go out and buy them. So in the past, after Sandy Hook, after San Bernardino, when Barack Obama was elected president, the sales of AR-15s were driving these huge spikes. What we've seen in the last four months is incredibly different. And what we've seen is that people are running out to buy handguns this time. They are scared for personal safety. Started with the coronavirus when people felt society was falling apart a little, and now it's continued with the protests. Same feeling. You wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal this week, and one of the things you noted, I mentioned this in the lead, is that there's a very high percentage of the buyers between March and June who are first-time buyers. Is that, as you say, that just folks kind of feel that everything is a bit out of whack and they're scared? Yeah, that's absolutely what it is. And contrasted again with these previous big sales spikes, those are buyers who already have a number of guns and they want to go get an AR-15 before they can't buy one. These are people coming to gun stores for the first time saying they feel unsafe and they want to get a handgun to protect their house or themselves. And what we saw during the coronavirus, we talked to a number of people during that first era. And what they said was they just didn't know if they could rely on the police to come to protect them. And it seemed to them that, you know, they had these visions of marauding hordes coming to take food and toilet paper. It does sound a little silly in retrospect, but I think at the time there was sort of this chaos and this great anxiety in America. We keep talking this March to June time period. When you then kind of have in the middle the George Floyd killing and then the protests and the defund the police movement, have you seen an acceleration of the spike since that began? In March, the number went beyond anything we've ever seen in the history of America. There was more background checks for gun sales in that month than ever before. Then it went down slightly for two months, and then it rocketed back up in June as all the protests started happening. So that's absolutely what we're seeing. And another interesting angle to this story is at least at first, we started to see a number of people buy guns who in the past never thought they would buy a gun. And I find that to be one of the more interesting angles of this story. Let me ask about that. And let me almost ask from a marketing standpoint, are you able to kind of unpack or figure out, is this folks who are sitting in their house, feel unsafe, and then that thought pops in their head, you know what, I've never wanted a gun before, but now is the time I should get one? Or is there basically some sort of kind of marketing push by the industry, by gun shops, et cetera, that are getting that message and putting that kernel in people's heads? Yeah, I mean, this is more a thing of people reading the news every day, getting scared and thinking about what they can do to protect themselves. And certainly we even spoke to people who, you know, they don't read the gun media. They don't read gun advertisements. These are liberals. And they went out and bought guns for the first time, which was very interesting to see. Spoke to one guy in Denver, you know, had marched for gun control and he had, you know, always sort of 
voted for politicians who favored gun control. When the coronavirus came along and he had had past experiences where police didn't show up to calls he made and he started wondering, you know, what can I do to protect myself? And he went out and bought a gun. Does that potentially change the politics at all of the gun and gun control debate? Are there enough of folks like that guy you saw in Denver, you know, a liberal who would march for gun control, who now have guns, who might no longer be on the same side they used to be on? Well, that's a really interesting question. I wondered that too. And I asked, have you joined the NRA or something like that? And he said, hell no. In fact, he was asked to donate to the NRA when he bought his gun. There's a little like pop-up and he donated them like 25 cents and then wrote them a nasty letter saying how much he did not like the organization. And instead he joined a group called Liberal Gun Owners, the Liberal Gun Owners Group. He still stands for strong gun control positions. So I don't know how much it's going to change the debate. I think people are going out and buying their guns for the first time and they still stand for sort of gun control. Let's hypothesize for a moment that Joe Biden wins the presidency and that Beto O'Rourke has some position, say, in the administration or either formal or informal. He could put in some strict gun control laws or, you know, with the Democratic Congress and pass it. But if we've got 7, 10, 12 million more guns in people's homes today than we had, you know, three, five months ago, does it change the effectiveness of any new gun control laws? Yeah, that's a great question. How does that change the politics on gun control? What kind of laws get passed? I think one of the things it might impact are the laws around buying guns and concealed carry and that sort of thing. A lot of these first-time owners who had previously supported strict rules for buying guns and for concealed carry were surprised to find how difficult it was to get a gun. Zush, let me just also ask, because you've written about this a bit in the past, with so many more guns in people's homes, particularly for new owners, are there second and third order impacts, things like domestic violence that might present themselves months, maybe years down the road? Yeah, I mean, I think gun control organizations are very clear about how worried they are about this. They're worried about more guns in the home at a time when there's a lot of chaos, a lot of uncertainty, an economic downturn, people losing jobs. They think it's a recipe for disaster. And they are encouraging, along with the gun industry as well, everyone to go get training, to lock up their guns. But yeah, certainly people are afraid that in these very perilous times, there's a lot more guns out there. Zusha Ellenson of The Wall Street Journal. Is there a title for the book yet? Tentatively calling our book American Gun, and it is the untold story of the AR-15 rifle. Thank you very much for joining. Thanks, Dan. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you'll lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still saying for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still saying for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still saying for St. Louis. New information in the case of the Central West End couple who drew guns on protesters last month. Homeowner Mark McCloskey says he expects to be indicted soon. And the police chief confirms that they've handed over an unlawful use of weapon case to prosecutors. But now the case has the attention of Governor Mike Parson and even the president. Five on your side, Sarah Maki has the update now. Sarah, what can you tell us? Well, Mike, this all came about just moments before Mike Parson walked out for his daily coronavirus briefing. He said just before he st stood in front of the podium, he had a phone call with the White House. And he said that the president pledged his support to the McCloskeys, offering to help them in any way he could. Now, this all comes less than 24 hours after Mark McCloskey was on Fox News last night, saying he anticipates charges soon. In that interview, McCloskey said he was defending his home from a group of protesters headed to Mayor Leia Cruz's home on June 28th. 
The day after this confrontation, St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner said she was investigating just what happened. Since then, police have seized the rifle used from the McCloskey's home. Their attorney later turned over the pistol. Now Parsons', Parsons solution is to change the law during upcoming special session so elected officials like Gardner can be removed from office. In Missouri, it is very difficult to do anyone do anything to someone that is elected official on removing them from office. It's very difficult. One of the things that we need to address in future sessions. So we reached out to Kim Gardner's office this morning since McCloskey says that he anticipates charges in this case. We were told by a representative that this is an ongoing investigation and that they had no comments at this time. In St. Louis, Sarah Maki, five on your side. This is my Thank you, Sam. We're learning more about a peaceful Black Lives Matter rally interrupted by a couple waving a gun at protesters in Kinderhook. Many of you have probably seen the posts on social media about this. And Emily DeVito has been looking into it. She joins us live in studio with a story new this morning. Emily, good morning. Good morning, Asa. Hudson Mayor Kamal Johnson had posted a few Facebook Live videos about the incident that, that took place Saturday. And he said he was disappointed to see peaceful protest in Kinderhook end this way. The mayor said he wanted to take the time to recount what happened. He said at the tail end of a Black Black Lives Matter protest, the group got to Rothermel Avenue. Johnson said a gentleman came out of a home saying obscenities, trying to rile the crowd up. He says the man then yelled to his wife to, quote, get my gun. Johnson says she ran inside and came back out, waving a gun around. He said they feared for their safety. They say as soon as the couple realized police were at the protest, though, she went and brought her gun back inside. Johnson said police follow her into the home, eventually came back out with the gun. Police were holding the gun. And then the two, the couple, were eventually put into patrol cars. You could see state police at the scene there. Now, we did reach out to state police about the incident. They said right now no charges have been filed. They said the investigation is ongoing, and there is a lot of digital evidence that has yet to be reviewed. But coming up in the next half hour, Mayor Johnson said he was disappointed in the police's handling of the incident, as well as the comments he received about it on Facebook regarding his Facebook Live videos. I'll tell you more about that. Asa? Okay, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Emily. I'm a cop. Jay, a veteran sergeant with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, has been fired for allegedly pointing his gun at a man's head and threatening to shoot. ABC Action News reporter Ryan Smith with the sheriff's response to the violent confrontation. Once honored as Deputy of the Year, the now former sergeant is charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. The sheriff calling his actions despicable after making a violent threat against an unarmed black man pointed his firearm at the victim's head and threatened his life simply because he refused to identify himself. According to Sheriff Chad Cronister, the victim was mistakenly transported from jail Thursday to a behavioral health center in Tampa. Deputies detained him in the area of East Annie Street and North Nebraska Avenue after he walked out of that center. Even though the victim of this crime is an arrestee, he is entitled to the same protections and rights of any victim of a crime. When the victim would not confirm his identity, deputies witnessed Sergeant Yannick Amin kneel beside him, threatening to shoot him in the head. He was not armed and made no aggressive actions towards our deputies. Sheriff Cronister credits surrounding deputies for stepping in and reporting the sergeant's actions. The violation of public trust and dishonoring of his oath to serve and protect is despicable. 
Amin spent 21 years with the Sheriff's Office, honored with Deputy of the Year by the Indian Advisory Council in 2014. HCSO confirms Amin was involved in a deadly shooting in 2007. Investigators called it justified, clearing him of any wrongdoing. And according to the Sheriff tonight, Amin is refusing to speak with investigators or comment about what exactly happened. In Tampa, Ryan Smith, ABC Action News. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. <laughs> the Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink, under, under Trump, on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in stage white supremacy. See, it's, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. The petition is asking for hate crime charges to be filed against a man who attacked a black woman and her family at Woodman's on Madison's east side last Thursday. Jamie Perez has more details describing what happened here. Jamie? Right. Well, the police incident report actually described this as more of a parking lot dispute, but that petition says that this was more racially charged. An online petition is circulating with about 4,000 signatures asking that this man is charged with a hate crime. The petition says 65-year-old David Lithjahan started yelling racial slurs at a black woman out of his car window, followed her as she parked, and attacked her. The woman says her son went to get help, and when he came back, Lithjahan started strangling him. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, son. Hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. The petition says 65-year-old David Lithjahan started yelling racial slurs at a black woman out of his car window, followed her as she parked, and attacked her. The woman says her son went to get help, and when he came back, Lithjahan started strangling him. This is what it looks like when you get handcuffed and you leap in somebody's car, put your hands on the woman, and put your hands on all her kids. You get arrested. Police later arrested him on suspicion of battery and disorderly conduct. According to the police incident report, Lithjahan denied punching the woman and told police he was upset that her car was blocking him from pulling out of a parking stall. The incident report makes no mention of racial slurs being used. Madison police have not commented on whether or not this man will be charged with a hate crime and uh, this case is still active and under investigation so they would not comment further. And Jamie Perez, Brian, Jamie, thank you. The fact that I'm on this end of the mall uh, almost 50 years later and twice witnessed the inauguration of the first African-American president. It says something about the distance we've come, the progress we've made as a nation and as a people.
A mother on Long Island says she is living in fear. She says she's the target of ongoing threats and racist harassment by her neighbors. And she says those threats don't stop, including a neighbor with his guns and even a dead squirrel, she says, was placed in her yard. Eyewitness News reporter Lucy Yang is live tonight in Valley Stream. Lucy? Well, Sandra, the single mom who lives in this home behind me says she tried everything to be a good neighbor, but the intimidations, the harassment just keep getting more intense. Now other neighbors are gathering around her to make sure she is not pushed out of this neighborhood. Because a dead squirrel is what's next after that? Am I going to be dead? This is Jennifer McLegan. You can't miss her house on Saper Street and Valley Stream. It's the one with the big sign explaining how she lives in fear. In case if something happens to me here, then somebody would know that I'm in the house with a baby. Because if I die in here, then at least the cops would see the sign. Jennifer, a nurse, moved into the corner home three years ago. Her suburban dream quickly turned into a nightmare, she says, when her next-door neighbors, who are white, made it clear she was not welcomed. The single mom claims it began with harassment over her yard. Still trying to be a good neighbor. I spent about $6,000 cutting down trees. I'm mowing the lawn myself. Next, she says she started finding feces dropped on her property and more recently, a dead squirrel. The previous owner said they ran her out of the neighborhood because of the dead squirrel she used to find, and she just couldn't take it anymore. On Sunday, Nassau County detectives were here investigating. Jennifer says these photos show her neighbors with a gun in a blackface mask in the middle of the night, spitting on her property. Erica Correa says she too was harassed when she first moved in, but not to this level. Right now, we're just trying to give her as much support and love that we can. The neighbors have now rallied behind Jennifer. The goal is for this mother and toddler to live in peace. Jennifer fears police have their hands tied. If there's no arrest, there's no restraining order. It's like they're kind of waiting for me to drop that in here before they help me. Well, as you can see live out here in the neighborhood, there are police uh, on location. We did knock on the next door neighbor's door this evening. No answer. Meanwhile, there is a protest scheduled for Thursday of this week in support of Jennifer and her toddler. 60 miles away, they had had the Tulsa riots. Years before I was born. But they never talked about them. 99 years ago, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, white mobs attacked the neighborhood known as Black Wall Street. They destroyed homes, set businesses ablaze, and killed as many as 300 people in what's now known as the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Now, as Chris Polanski of member station KWGS reports, the city is still trying to find the final resting place of some of those victims. Roberta Clardy has a lawn chair set up on a patch of grass between U.S. Highway 75 and the gates of Tulsa's Oaklawn Cemetery. Right now, it's been more emotional than it was yesterday. She's watching a team of researchers use shovels and heavy machinery to dig in a corner of the cemetery with no headstones. Investigators say ground-penetrating radar suggests the presence of a mass grave here. Many victims have never been found, even after almost a century. Clardy says her family has been in Tulsa for generations since before the massacre. I don't know if I can explain your emotional just feeling really horrible. What in the world were we doing for 99 years? All this work that we're doing right now, 
The city of Tulsa should have been doing this in 1921. That's Tulsa's mayor, G.T. Bynum, a Republican. In 2018, he announced City Hall would help fund the work. It's important to us at the city that the descendants of these victims know that our commitment to this investigation is long-term. One of those descendants is Regina Goodwin, an Oklahoma state representative whose district includes the Greenwood neighborhood, the historical center of gravity of Tulsa's black community. We want for the ancestors to know that they are remembered. We want the public to know that they are deserving of a more sacred resting place as opposed to being discarded like trash. Goodwin is glad the work is being done, but says she and others have been sitting on committees and trying to make this happen for decades. It's not about 2021. It's really been about the 99 intervening years when very little has been done. We've been taking steps backwards. And I don't think you should have to wait out a centennial. Work was scheduled to begin in April, but was delayed due to the pandemic. The team has been digging every day since they started on Monday. They say they haven't found remains, but forensic anthropologist Phoebe Stubblefield says they feel confident. It's not 100 percent, but it's a very high level of uh, certainty, enough that, yes, we should dig there. Because you don't disturb dead people just because you feel like it. For NPR News, I'm Chris Polanski in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I watched a white riot in Portland, Oregon on television the other night. It's been more than a month and a half since protesters began a nightly routine of clashing with Portland police downtown. It's been about a week since the White House declared Portland a city under siege and sent in federal officers, whom we've watched pull people from sidewalks into unmarked vans and fracture a man's skull by shooting him in the face with a less than lethal round. It happened moments before this video was taken. This is an attack on our democracy. Mayor Ted Wheeler calls it an explicit abuse of power. Mr. President, federal agencies should never be used as your own personal army. Let's be clear, this is not political theater. This is far more dangerous than that. We have federal officers on our streets further escalating tensions and causing harm to Portlanders. As a city, we're not able to hold them to account. And that's highly problematic. The mayor argues protests were de-escalating about a week ago and thinks they would have ended by now had Portland been left alone. The mayor says President Trump sent in federal officers to fire up his base during an election season, a point echoed by Governor Kate Brown. It's all about scoring political points and, of course, a photo opportunity. Governor Brown said she told Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf, who visited Portland this week, the presence of federal officers is escalating the violence. The mayor says he never spoke with Secretary Wolf and doesn't want to. And in a somewhat strange moment Friday, Portland's chief of police said he didn't meet with the secretary either, then added... I do not believe anyone uh, from the police bureau did. But I can't say that for 100 percent. He later sent a press release saying the president of Portland's police union, Daryl Turner, indeed met with the secretary. President Trump this week has been declaring victory. We've done a great job in Portland. Portland was totally out of control and we very much quelled it. 
He points to the month and a half of violence and millions of dollars in damage downtown as proof the federal officers were needed in Portland. That said, reporters pressed local leaders for a plan to stop the violence. Here's our Pat Doris with Governor Brown. Uh, I am aware of plans uh, to tackle the issues in the city of Portland, yes. But no National Guard or state police coming in from on your orders? Look, my experience uh, in terms of dealing with these types of situations is that adding military force and adding uh, troops only escalates. I think the movement, the direction we need to go in is to de-escalate and dialogue. Pressed for his plan, Mayor Wheeler said this. We get rid of the feds, number two. Uh, we contain and de-escalate the situation. Number three, we clean up downtown. And number four, we open up for business. Maggie Vespa, KGW News. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 18, 2020. So I have been told. Uh, we will be here tomorrow. Global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, early time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Looking forward. Uh, always am. I am uh, to hearing from our listeners in different parts of the globe. Uh, see how they are dealing with the COVID-19 situation. Uh, see how they're dealing with the protests. Uh, see how the coverage of what's happening in the states, how that is going across the world uh, but that'll be tomorrow 3 p.m. Eastern 12 noon Pacific tune in take advantage uh, system of white supremacy is global should exchange information with other victims of white supremacy globally as well this is our compensatory call in weekly <clears throat> we'll review hopefully share some suggestions counter racist analysis thoughts on some of the new segments that we just heard if you would like to dial in, share a thought or two, the number to dial, see if I can give out the new number, 720-716-7300. Code again is 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. So the brand new number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Many things to share before we get to it. Uh, White Dog seems to be all right. Listeners uh, wrote in feedback and seemed like they thought it was constructive. So we will continue. Romaine Gary's White Dog just started the first session this past Thursday. Session number two coming up this Thursday. The movie is very different from the book. You can probably should check out the movie. Dr. Gerald Horn said so on the program a few weeks back, but it is very different. Very, very different from the book. White Dog, so excited. Uh, before we go any further, terrible year uh, just continues this week. We had the passing of Congressman 
former member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I was sadly uh, thinking of the oldie but goodie 50 Cent Classic Whip Your Head. That was what I thought of when I learned that Congressman Lewis passed away age of 80, which is stunning considering all of the direct violence he endured uh, from white to live that long. But that was the song that I thought of. Like there is more footage of John Lewis, Congressman Lewis uh, being beaten, bloodied, nearly killed uh, by race soldiers. I think it's in uh, James Foreman's James Foreman Sr.'s uh, The Making of Black Revolutionaries. Excellent book. We should maybe read that on the book club. Uh, but I think he says uh, he was also in SNCC. He's talking about seeing John Lewis. He said, man, it seemed like every time I see him, he got a new bandage on where whites have been whipping on his head. That's why I thought total disgrace and indictment of the system of white supremacy. But I'm pretty sure you check out any of the documentary footage that they'll be playing over the next month or so. Anything that they show black and white footage, 1960s, 70s. Oh, yeah. It's not going to be too many of them where he's not going to be uh, pretty boy. John Lewis, not at all. Head whipped John Lewis, victim of white supremacy, victim of white terrorism. Uh, also, Reverend uh, C.T. Vivian, uh, victim of white supremacy, member of the so-called civil rights movement right there with Dr. King. He and John Lewis often. Uh, he also passed away this week at the age of 95, uh, which is also remarkable given the amount of direct terrorism he experienced. Uh, but lots of losses this year at minimum. Uh, they got to experience a little more time on the planet. And both individuals used a lot of their time and energy to fight against the system of racism. I did say a few weeks ago, a few times, actually anti-blackness that's kind of a reflex of white supremacy we get upset frustrated angry depressed a little bit of all of the above uh, about white supremacy especially when they escalate the abuse against us and we are trained not to focus our frustration on whites so we just take it out on other victims of racism who are in a pretty weak position and can't really do a whole lot to you know whip our head they're kind of impotent too uh, and that kind of happens when there's intense pressure on victims of racism times like now. Uh, that's it. Kind of watch that. I even saw some of that with the passing of John Lewis. Ah, forget John Lewis. He's worthless. What's he done? No count coon. So, I wouldn't care what John Lewis did. He passed away. Like regardless of what I thought of him at, you know, this moment, it's oh, okay. He's passed away. Or at least, you know, VGQ and recognize the passing of a black person. I think we heard a lot of reports about the system of white supremacy showing total disregard for black people in life and death. So at minimum, we'd just be, oh, okay, well, we had a victim of white, someone who, who, who maybe I didn't agree with a word, a syllable Congressman Lewis ever uttered. Maybe that's the case. Even if it is victim of white supremacy who tried as best he could to, t to solve this problem what bad should be said about someone in under those circumstances at their death 
anybody has an answer to that question step forward if there's a reason some constructive reason for us to talk bad about John Lewis and what a coon he is one of our guests uh, remember we had uh, the author of the report the castrated giant Uh, we just talked about the march on Washington Michael Thelwell who was also in SNCC he was a guest on our program in 2013 for the 50 year anniversary of the DC march and uh, he before we went live, I said, like, yeah, that no good John Lewis, no count scoundrel. <laughs> what problem are we going to solve? We can sit around and talk bad about John Lewis. Al Sharpton, always loved that one. Jesse Jackson, any other favorites? President Obama, we can sit around and call them names all day long and tomorrow. I don't think that'll solve any problems. Black self-respect, very important. Next, list of things. they talked about the motivation for the spike in gun sales we've been talking about that for some time I thought it was fascinating they said you normally see these trends increasing they didn't have any mention of racial classification at all it wasn't white people going out to buy these guns just Americans people individuals I'm not sure that's true. I don't think you had a whole lot of black people when that nigger got elected in 2008. I don't think you had a rash of African-Americans said, oh, man, I'm fearful that coon's going to take our guns. Let me go out and get me an assault rifle or three. I don't think that happened. I could be in error. Anyway, so they give that whole report no mention of racial classifications or specifying whites. Uh, and he says, so it's normally mass shootings. That's how he started. He says, normally mass shootings. You know, it's not the Rona or protests. It's normally mass shootings. You know, you have Sandy Hook, or that fella in Las Vegas, these different shootings, or the election of President Obama. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> you said mass shootings. The election of President Obama is not a mass shooting. What does that have to do with these other events? Explain. Now, if it's we think that that coon is going to take our guns, hmm, did he say anything in 2008? Because I don't remember him saying anything in 2008 about, I'm going to take your guns. It was health care. That was the big one. Health care and, you know, that no good Jeremiah Wright. That was what I don't, if he was saying something about, you know, we need more gun control. And I can't imagine a first black president getting elected on a platform of gun control. Like, really? Anywho, uh, it was not just mass shootings, mass shootings, that Coon being elected, Negra in the White House, Oof. uncertainty, fear, white genetic annihilation. This time around, the protests, why would that spark another increase? You get the Rona first time around, which is odd in and of itself. Like, really? We need to go out and stock up on guns and toilet paper. And he said it seems silly in retrospect. It does not seem silly to me when you look at all of those gun reports. It doesn't seem silly at all because they said there in a number of those reports from the spring of this year, they thought this would happen. Lots more guns. Lots of folks, what they call it, they got that metaphor, itchy trigger finger. Whole nother meaning to the word trigger warning. Like, ooh wee, ooh wee, I've been cooped up in the house and I got my new pistol. Negras are on the loose talking about defunding the police department it is alright I am ready to roll no badge 
firearm at the ready equalizer and then you hear all those reports black people out brandishing firearms left and right across the US extremely dangerous times Dr. Welsing one of her more important quotes she had many uh, if you don't understand race or white supremacy racism you will not understand gun mania called it the Obama effect the first time around you will not understand it at all probably have a whole lot more examples for the rest of the year let's see Uh, excited delirium that was the term that they used to describe uh, when George Floyd or some other victim of white supremacy they're going to be arrested placed in greater confinement excited delirium reminded me of the book uh, protest psychosis about the history of draptomania and how whites they will make up different medical terms oh this nigger is crazy seems like he's upset about us mistreating him he has got to have all kinds of mental defects let's get a new term we'll call it let's see uh doesn't delirious excited delirium yes 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 he's got excited delirium an extra case of it yes excited delirium that's what it is that's what killed George Floyd yes have to be on the lookout for that the niggers are prone to ED that's what we'll call excited delirium what and then you heard from the white professor he said that this is a waste basket term I said why write that down we say on the compensatory call in no metaphors let's be direct about what we mean waste basket term I thought you throw things rep- rubbage right that's what you throw in the waste basket that's not where you put your jewelry at right that's not where you put your your prized heirloom produce right you throw trash in the wastebasket. He said it's a wastebasket term. And then he said it's poorly defined. Oof. Words don't mean anything without a definition. Very important. That's why you have a lot of these folks who run around and they say, oh, racism is a problem. White privilege is a problem. And they have no definition. Dr. Eddie Moore Jr., that's a cowbell. Dr. Eddie Moore Jr., alleged founder of the White Privilege Conference. I went to, I think it was either the 10th or the 11th edition of the White Privilege Conference in La Crosse, Wisconsin. They give college credit for individuals if you attend the White Privilege Conference, if you write a paper, you might have to read a book. Like they have uh, criterion uh, for it, like certain things that you have to do. But they like legitimate college credit. You'll have a transcript and everything that you completed this. They have been in operation for a minimum of 10 years, maybe 11. And I said, well, what what definition are we using for white privilege or racism? Whatever. Well, you know, people know what it means. Stop acting crazy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, finally, went around, talked to some white people. They don't have definitions. I said, yeah, that's right. They should have a definition. And they ended up, you know, but to be in operation for 11 years making thousands of dollars, college credit, all of this, big conferences, white authors coming in, selling books, keynote addresses, all that. What is it? The, the, the cognac room. All that. And we don't even have a definition for racism. That is very, very common. 
words don't mean anything without a definition and I contend one of the main ways that white people deliberately willfully practice white supremacy racism they will use terms without giving them a definition so that they become a wastebasket term deliberately vague deliberately difficult to get a grasp on what we're talking about the more you use it the more confused you get designed to be there you got to be careful of that watch it ask for definitions as well especially if it's a term that everybody just assumes we know what we're talking we all know what racism is or we're talking as though we all have the same definition for this term which is often not the case as well but I thought that was important let's see speaking of terms uh, they also had the segment on uh, fertility rates dropping worldwide. I thought that was important. And that was another one where they didn't mention race. However, when they mentioned the outlier, and that's not the term that they used. I'm, you know, a retarded victim of white supremacy. I don't even have a robust vocabulary. But they said the continent bucked the trend I think that's in the word guide I'm a little lazy I can't quite I can see my word guide but I can't reach it I I know the word buck is in the word guide they could have picked a whole lot of terms the continent of Africa was an outlier one nation that went against the grain lots of different ways that they could have freed they got thesauruses for a reason no, Africa bucked the trend, the unruly dark Negro continent, or the Kaffirs, yeah, that's what it is over there, Kaffir continent. And then they went specifically to Nigeria. Some days my memory is not so bad. So, in the midst of a global health pandemic in 2014, it was Ebola, and I talked about sequencing. So, on NPR's All Things Considered, in the summer, it was about right now, six years ago, right now. We were getting ready for uh, whatever, you know, the summer. I guess we were getting ready for Michael Brown Jr. to be killed. But they had a report. They were talking about Ebola, or no, they started it with the UNESCO. They started with UNESCO. Oh, my goodness population predictions exactly what they just said oh my god Nigeria alone is going to have a billion people and it was not oh this is glorious everybody will learn about Fela Kuti and we'll have more black people and maybe this will help work against racism and this will improve economics on the continent and just wow the next century all about the continent and Nigeria just cranking out little black people no it was oh my god what are we going to do can we put a stop to this and the very next report was, oh, Ebola is ravaging the continent. Thousands dying. Never any joy about black people reproducing. Bucking the trend. Buck breaking, they call it. Uh, for this program, see, lots of illustrations. They were all throughout. Lots of them. Can probably pick out a lot more. Uh, in terms of uh, all those metaphors and cliches uh, and analogies uh, in terms of how they uh, present information. Frequently, it's done deliberately to be deceptive. Uh, Victims of white supremacy, we, myself included, we've been exposed to this misconduct for centuries. uh, And a lot of times we are still learning. Uh, So sometimes we just don't have all the information to articulate our views so we will swap 
an analogy, a metaphor, a simile of some sort, uh, and hope that that does the job. Frequently, that just contributes to more confusion. Uh, if we could be direct, exact, specific with what we want to say, that would be appreciated. I will prompt about the metaphors. Uh, let's see. I'm sure there will be more as we proceed. Uh, I will give out the new number again in case you want to write it down. I think the old number uh, still does work, but just so that people can <clears throat> begin to make adjustments uh, and we can get it written down and give myself a few more opportunities to remember. So the new number is 720. 716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Again, we will be here tomorrow. Global Sunday Talk on Racism. 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, last thing I'll get in quickly before we get to some of the folks who dialed in. Uh, one of our listener, listeners, uh, Brittany, she called in last week down in Louisiana. We heard about the mask mandate, uh, but she dialed in. I posted a report. They had one of these COVID-19 parties uh, featuring a lot of whites, young whites uh, out with no mask and uh, at the beach, crammed in super tight. Uh, together, no social distancing and people were upset about this. Apparently some people did test positive from this event and all the rest. So what are you going to do? So I posted a link to this and I was asked in your opinion, how does COVID-19 strengthen white supremacy or does it even? Good question. All are, I reckon. Uh, so I thought about it for a bit. This was my response. Other folks can think about this. Or if you have thoughts on the question, share. Uh, so my response was uh, my view. COVID-19 is strengthening the system of white supremacy because it's generating a lot of confusion. Confusion is lethal because white people have a system to spread information and or misinformation and they have the power to protect themselves. This gives them a huge advantage in times of chaos. And when there is a lot of confusion, the most powerful people generally are called on to straighten things out, solve problems. Not to mention the reports about how the virus and the economic shutdown is impacting black people. Mr. Fuller says that one of the biggest errors is valuing survival more than justice. If you can create an environment where survival seems uncertain, that would seem to benefit the system as well. I could be wrong. Just my thoughts, but anything that generates a lot of confusion, I would generally say benefits the system of white supremacy. And wow, unlike anything I have seen in some time, this COVID-19 situation has generated a lot of confusion worldwide. Uh, confusion is lethal. We are in a system. The primary weapon is deception. So to just have people confused about what's happening and uncertain and having a guess and you don't know. <sighs> racist man, racist woman, racist child thrive in those type of environments. But we'll see. <clears throat> 
what folks have to share. Star six one if you have commentary. Uh, let's see. We'll get to folks. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Hello. Hello, ma'am. Can you hear us? Greetings, Irie. Hello, everyone. Um, hi, Gus. I want to make it quick. Um, it's just listening to the headlines, listening to Dr. Francis and the, the report about gun sales. So we know basically it's been surmised that they are in fear of genetic annihilation. But right now, it's just what you said, and that's basically what I wanted to contribute. Right now, they have the excuse of basic survival to practice white supremacy because, number one, they're they're uncertain about what's going on in their lives. They have allowed the repetition of um, feudalism and, and serfdom and all that other stuff that they said they hated from Europe to pervade them here in a new so-called country. And they've been lied to by the white people that they would normally call kings, queens, and aristocracy. They've been lied to yet again by these people that they now call president, congressman, congresswoman, governor, mayor, whatever. And because they're no longer in Europe and, and they don't, they're not, they don't, they have an option to not tear each other, excuse me, that's a metaphor. They have an option not to go to war with just themselves now. They have the, the opportunity to take out their aggression on the aristocracy that they so-called elected here. They, they're taking it out on non-white people, so that's one point. Then two, these people who call themselves white and practice white supremacy have made it a point and a, and a right, if not an honor as well. Well, yes, an honor, literally, because they get awarded for it. They have hoarded things that non-white people and so-called white people need, the powerless whites. But the people that have been allowed to hoard more of the resources that every human being probably needs, they know there's an imbalance. So now they're looking at it like, I have to protect what I have. You know, my, my multiplicity of things. If, if you know in, in your mind that people with the same education as you or same experience, whatever, are getting hundreds of thousands, tens of, tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars less in salary than you, you know what I'm saying? And then here you are, you have all, you, you've been overpaid for the same job other people are doing. You have entitlements such as uh, retirement and so on and so forth that most of these people are not getting. You, you're able to amass wealth, pass it down, and live in comfort because of non-white people. We're comfort people, and they know that. So now they're scared, witless, and the only thing they know is what their uncle meaning the government taught them is violence, direct violence. And yeah, they're gonna they're buying guns, they're buying uh ordnance. Please guys, like you heard the reports about people walking down the street 
with RPGs. You know, they got grenades. They got all kinds of stuff. There are, you know, they're looking forward to this so-called boogaloo because, again, they not, they're not brave enough to go to the aristocracy and corrupt royalty that they've elected to say, you've ripped us off, you've lied to us time and time again. We want what we're supposed to have from you. They're not brave enough to do that. So they have to, the only bravery they have is taking it out on us. And they have all kinds of tricks up their sleeve. And I pray to the Most High by this time, everyone that listens to this podcast or this radio show, if you haven't by now, proceeded in doing something about protecting yourself that you after this that you do that that you pursue due diligence and you get on it because it this is this is on it's going to be ongoing and this is real it's not a test and it's going to probably get to the point i predict that yeah they're going to find some reason to maybe suspend the police because they're going to do it as punishment and they're also going to do it as a tactic to make these white people more afraid so they can shoot or or threaten to shoot or do more direct violence to non-white people. It's time to get on yourself a very urgent, expedient, and large way. Do not go on Amazon and all these other websites and buy stuff you do not need. Please get your food in order, your water supply, if not your water, like, things to clean water. If you can't store water, get your guns and get your ammo like yesterday. Thank you. That's all I have to say. Much obliged. Irie in Louisiana. Mask mandate down there. Has that been wacky? I guess really quick. Governor Edwards just put in, we heard that report as well, uh, putting in the mask mandate. Has that been uh, like another element of, of chaos or have, at least where you are, are people wearing masks without a big deal, without making it an issue, without it being conflict? Um, some people are doing it. A lot of people are not, you know, and then like a lot of white people are not. I witnessed a guy walk into a store I was in without a mask and I was like, you know, a design on the door says you should have a mask. And he was like, I don't have to do it. I said, you're right. I said, that's why y'all keep falling off the radar like it's nobody's business. So it depends. It depends on, you know, it depends. White people doing what they want to do. And I think there's, to to a degree, a lot of black people, like I was in the beginning, were skeptical about what was going on because of the history of uh, medical apartheid. They didn't know what to believe. So some people weren't wearing masks that I knew because they thought it was, you know, uh, propaganda or something. But it's better to just take precautions. That's what I'm doing. But it, it's hit or miss. It just depends. That's what I say. I mean, I'll mute my line. Thank you for the answer, ma'am. Uh, take it seriously. Uh, and particularly if you're in an area where people are not taking it seriously like that, white or non-white people, take it seriously. We do not have enough information to be messing around you do not want to be sorry uh on this one um much obliged uh for sharing uh, and also take it seriously with regards to whites uh they are dangerous and they are armed that's why i've been saying avoid skirmishes avoid being out uh in public uh if you can you know be strategic it's not really a time to just be 
out having fun, doing things like it's a normal summer. It is not uh, real strategic and really alert if it looks like something is going to happen because so many of these incidents have just been in real, you know, the grocery store, you know, really mundane environments, the parking lot. Uh, so be mindful uh, when you are uh, out and about. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, I will say really quickly uh, just on the gun uh, hey we have done shooting at the cows yoga retreat multiple times uh, we've gone to the gun gun range and just did shooting outside safely with lots of space all great uh, spectacular, especially if you can engage in some firearms practice where you don't have racist instructors or be in an environment saturated with racists. All of that said, whites have substantially more guns than non-white people. They produce the firearms and the ammunition and repair them, all the rest of it. So it's not that I'm opposed, it's just... Philando Castile, Alton Sterling. There are more black people who have firearms where it still doesn't really do a whole lot to help. Again, not speaking against it. Certainly you can have it, but I don't know how many problems that's going to solve either. Uh, I certainly I remember the white man, uh, Mr. Bush, uh, who did the shooting in Kentucky uh, earlier I believe it was either this year or last year, later part of last year. Uh, but he was uh, stopped by an armed victim of racism. I believe it was a black male who had his concealed carry legally armed, had his firearm, was able to fire back and helped stop that situation from being much more tragic, uh, greater loss of life. But frequently race soldiers have shown that they have no problem neutralizing uh, black people, black person individually with a gun or no but like I said self-defense great we've gone to the firing uh, fire range gun range great uh, be codified if anything having a firearm requires a lot of codification right on uh, let's see uh, lots of spectators this is not a broadcast for spectating and particularly this uh, time period really any time under the system of racism but especially with everything that is happening right now on the planet there should be lots of folks with observations uh, also for your offspring there have been I've kind of lost count uh, because I've not I've not had a situation like this before where I've gotten confused there have been so many reports where I was going to do the audio I said this last week they had a report of a racist attacking children with firecrackers all of the noise abuse they had a report of race soldiers attacking a child with firecrackers and I got confused I looked and I heard it again I said am I playing the same report oh no it's two different instances instances of racists attacking children with firecrackers same thing happened this week I'm listening to the report they're talking about the white couple that comes out and is brandishing firearm and threatening protesters I said wait a minute am I playing the same oh it's two different reports of this talk to your children 
uh, make sure that they are very aware when they go out in public. They sh- uh, when they played the report, the black mom, she's in her vehicle. We've heard so many of those. It starts in the vehicle. Some random race soldier drives up. You cut me off or looked at me funny or I don't like the color of your vehicle or whatever. Uh, and they drive up and blah, all this threatening and try to get to a public place, which she did. She got to the grocery store uh, parking lot, but I guess there they were feuding over a parking spot or whatever. That's what he was upset about. But anyway, she uh, said her son, he goes to get help, comes back and the race soldier is strangling her son. <laughs> I was speechless. Like I, that was why we did the rewind. Cause I was just, I was stunned. Like, uh, I do not have children. Thankfully, I don't have children, but I mean, you go <laughs> trying to go to the grocery store. I mean, you're trying to go to the grocery store. You park a race soldier gets upset over the parking spot. And in seconds, your child is being strangled. That is the system of racism. And that's what I mean about white people can ruin your life in about five seconds and how dangerous they are. Anything. That's why I've said consistently. I've been saying it for at least a month and a half. Now you go out in public and it's any sort of situation like that. Get out of there. There is no, I'm saving face. There is no, I got a concealed carry. I'm ready. There's no nothing. There is. Oh, I could die in the next 30 seconds. If I'm a parent and I have my children with me, my child, anything could happen. Let's go. It's nothing at this grocery store that's worth all that. We can shop later. And I would explain that to my offspring. And hopefully I would have been going over the news reports with them. Very important to talk to your children about racism, but we would be going over some of these news reports. Do you see all of these different incidents that have been happening? It is so dangerous. That's why I'm telling you all the time. Can't be just going. I'm not going outside hanging out it's not that time it's super dangerous on top of the rona or in addition to but super dangerous so that as soon as that type of situation starts he's fussing and yelling and we are getting out of here we will do this later this is what i mean and explaining to them this sort of thing can escalate you could even go and show them different situations where this type of thing escalates you never know where they can end up having a gun or they can end up being with more white people or any lots of things we are in a very weak position that's what i'd be telling if it was my child we are in a very weak position even if we call the police that can make things worse for us let's get out of here and if you are out there comes a day you're out driving by yourself and i'm not here hey get out of there it's not about saving face it's not about proving anything it is about i am doing what is best for my safety i'm gonna get out of here as quickly as i can if you need to call enforcement officers while you are fleeing do so but exit take it real it's too many of those reports i've never seen anything like this in time we've been doing the program anywho uh, other question I'll get in if uh, folks are spectating we're definitely going to wrap early uh, because they're like lots of folks just calling and for all the things to be happening for folks this is not a spectator broadcast for people to just dial in and listen uh, certainly parents there would be a whole lot to discuss with everything that's happening here uh, also was going to ask there were folks who were requesting information about transitioning in terms of your diet 
if you want to try to eat better, which we have certainly talked a lot about um, in the book Nutrisa, and unfortunately, Dr. Ruby Lathan, many other folks who've been on the program, super important yoga retreats, all that diet is critical. That is the protest. Uh, they have been, and I mean, when I say like a lot, like a lot of folks who have dialed in and asked about like diet tips for transitioning. And I've shared like, you know, people have asked me questions and I certainly share. I don't feel like, you know, I'm not a, a qualified uh, dietitian, right? Not a certified nutritionist, Dr. Lathan. Uh, but I've certainly shared information where people have asked questions. I feel like there's a lot of that information available already, like on YouTube and many other outlets, uh, like in terms and black people like cookbooks, uh, cooking channels, all of that. I feel like that uh, that exists in great abundance, uh, like all it would take is sitting down and putting in black vegan cooking and you I mean, as much time as you want to invest years, months, whatever you have, like you could go and just watch YouTube video. If you're a you know, video learner, uh, if you're about reading, they have cookbooks, bunches of them recipes. If that's all you really want, you don't want to read anything. You just want the recipes. They've got that vegan cookbooks and everything like tons of it. Black females, black males, black couples. It's tons uh, of that material already available. Uh, so if people feel like more of that material is needed, you could share. Uh, if you have any tips, that's also super great. But I've had lots of folks who have asked for that sort of material, and I'm just flabbergasted. I mean, you could just YouTube, right? You could crack out your phone. You don't need a lot of expensive gadgetry. Open up your YouTube app. Bam. Black vegan cooking or black plant-based cooking. And I'm sure you will find all kinds like limitless and people have been some people have been doing this for years and years and years so they'll have all kinds of content recipes transition plans like people talked about that like I don't I'm not accustomed to cooking with vegetables and all that all of that stuff exists just on YouTube alone much less you could probably go to your library well uh, maybe when your library opens again you could do that uh, or at least you could look online and see different books there might be some that you could download Tracy Lynn McWhorter's book I think you can download by any greens necessary but there are lots of resources in that regard so nobody should in 2020 they even got apps for all that so nobody should be like struggling with transitioning their diet and eating a little better right on uh, star six one uh, if you have thoughts uh, I guess any input on the changing your diet that'd be good too uh, let's see folks we've missed totally if you have a hand up proceed hi Gus be in Toronto hi greetings to you callers and listeners um, so yes uh, first on the news clips that you had provided on your program uh, when I listened to the story about the race soldier uh, terrorizing um, the mom and her children, and then on top of that, strangling her son, I, oh, I, I did not want to envision myself in that situation because it would have ended differently, and uh, it, it would have ended differently. Um, I, I, I would... I, I, to be honest, my first reaction would not have been get out of there. My first reaction would have been 
would have been something completely different. Um, but it, it is important to, to get out of danger um, as much as possible. Um, if my son was, was being strangled by that race soldier, that race soldier, <sighs> we would not be talking about that race soldier anymore, uh, so to speak. Um, the next thing is in terms of um, the the mortality rate, the the low birth mortality rate um, for Black mothers. Um, that it's an ongoing situation by design um, by white supremacists because uh, it's it 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 falls into their eugenics mandate. Uh, which is to, in part, kill kill off black people. Um, so it's not surprising. Um, in terms of self-care, which I'll include the foods, um, my son and I have been also transitioning. Um, we've definitely been... Uh, very productive um, in that part with substitution. So rather than drinking sugary drinks, um, we drink a lot of water or um, we'll sometimes have uh, flavor droplets, uh, sugarless um, flavor droplets um, to flavor the water or even cut uh, half of a lemon or half of lime and squeeze it into the water. So that's been helping, especially in the morning. First thing in the morning, that's that's usually what I would have as part of the routine. Um, rather than having cereal, we've been having salad. Um, we've been getting more, um, uh, I guess, more inventive with the salad preparation. Before, it would have been just the mixed greens. Uh, we've been including uh, blackberries with the mixed greens. And we've been opening up more on um, a little bit of the salad dressing. So um, for a recipe, if anyone wants to try mixed greens, blackberries, and a little bit of sesame seed um, vinaigrette, uh, that tastes absolutely wonderful. Another one that uh, one may try is um, mixed greens, blackberries, and strawberries with... Um, a little bit of the pear and blue cheese vinaigrette, and uh, it's it's a different experience. So absolutely um, enjoy. Uh, before, I wouldn't have mixed, other than, say, the tomato, I wouldn't have mixed any other fruit with the greens, but I find that it, it just enhances um, the flavor um, altogether with the greens. Uh also, with the nature trails, we continue doing the nature trails. Um, oh, yes. Uh, also, in terms of the vegan um, foods, uh, so there's there's there are many recipes on YouTube. Um, there's also the local ITEL um, cooking um, that may be available in your neighborhood. Um, it's a it's a Jamaican. It's it's usually affiliated with Rastafarians because Rastafarians um, are vegan. 
so there's um there are I tell restaurants at least I know in Toronto um where uh, everything is completely vegan it's com- it's very flavorful uh so something to try um but another thing that I would be trying is instead of say jerk chicken I would use that same seasoning on tofu um and and let it soak up the flavors that way uh, so replace, replacing the meat alternatives with tofu. Uh, also another thing, um, for self care, uh, that has been helping is, uh, doing workouts as well. So sometimes, well, actually this evening, I did a 30 minute soca workout, um, for, to soca music. And, um, so you have all the, for myself, I like dancing. So you have all these different dances. Sometimes I'll do the Zumba. Uh, there's also the dance hall workout. Uh, there's also the Afrobeats workout. So there's a whole bunch of different variations. Um, ironically enough, I even did the Bollywood workout. Um, so, so just to explore all of those, even if it means you do doing, um, a different type of workout, um, each day, then that also helps. But I find that as I eat a lot more fruits and vegetables, uh, the weights have been dropping. I've been feeling much better. My thinking has been much sharper. Um, my son and I, um, because he's also explained the same as well, um, just feeling really good about ourselves, feeling really strong. And, um, yeah, uh, thanks, and I'll, I'll leave the line. Hmm. Well, this is uh, common, she said. Other than to, I love the experimenting. I love the experimenting with the salad, uh, and the blackberries. It's summertime, so there are lots of fresh fruits available. I think uh, one of the fruits we experimented with was mangoes in salad. Fresh mangoes, Whew. lovely in the summer, anytime really, but especially in the summer because they're fresh and ripe. But um, you never put uh, like cucumber or avocado in your salad. Oh yes, I I do that. Just for myself, I know that like I like I do the I put in the cucumber and the avocado. I just don't put it with the uh with say the blackberries and the strawberries. And it's just only um I I don't know, I have weird taste buds. So sometimes it it doesn't work out for me. Um so what I would do is I would put, um, like, I'll have it separately with the greens um, away from the fruits. So if I put the fruits with the greens, then that's one thing. And then if I'm having avocado, it would be avocado with the greens uh, and the, with the cucumbers as well. Um, so, I ha- so I haven't tried that blend as well. Oh, and there is one more thing. Do you continuously have uh, cotton candy grapes in Seattle? Like year round? Well, um, well, for for this season, because I know in 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 Toronto, there there was there was a shipment of cotton candy grapes. Like, a, and I checked at the different local stores, and of course, because of its popularity, it's all gone. So then I was asking the managers of each of the stores I was going to. When is the next shipment? And they're saying it's in August. So I'm. I'm, I feel a little frustrated about that because I really do love cotton candy grapes um, mm. and have been 
just stocking up more on cherries, um, as well as uh, to try the gumdrop drapes, crepes. <laughs> oh, geez, I'm saying it all wrong. The gumdrop grapes, as well as the moon grapes, because those are really good as well, too. Um, but, yes, just wondering if, if you get it um, consistently throughout, or is there, like, breaks in between? Because in Toronto, there seems to be breaks in between with the cotton candy grape supplies. I see. Uh, I just brought up the avocado and cucumber because those are fruits technically, uh, even though I don't think people tend to think of them as fruits. Anything with seeds in it, they say white people is a fruit. Um, but the cotton candy grapes, uh, they've been pretty consistent this summer. They've been there at least the last month or so. They've been there pretty consistently and they, they don't have them all the time, but they don't just have them in the summer. Um, I remember they had them at the beginning of the year uh, and they had them even before the Rona happened. They had cotton candy grapes and now they're back in abundance with the summer. Uh, I think it's you all in Canada. You are further away from all the great uh, growth cycles like California, Florida, Mexico, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so it's a little, it takes longer to get produce there. That's why. I was looking at that for the retreat. Like it takes a little bit longer. Generally, it's a little bit more expensive to get Miyoko's cheese, cotton candy grapes, that type of thing. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we missed totally. Uh, if you have a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Um, I was a little bit um, distracted. I was looking up cotton candy grapes. My best thing my ever. Husband bought them. <laughs> my husband bought them recently, and I never ate them because I'm like cotton candy grapes. Grapes don't taste like cotton candy, or isn't supposed to taste like cotton candy. So it's a bit uh, suspicious if it was real or not. So I didn't eat it. Um, I wanted to comment on. I don't know if you guys are familiar with aloe vera, but it's supposed to be good for the blood and to be a blood cleaner. And one thing that I do is I, uh, I get aloe vera and I, uh, you know, I get the gel from inside of it and I just squeeze out like a, maybe a box or so of tangerines and oranges and I just blend that together with a tangerine and it's, I think it's very good. And you can also, if you want like a really good, like a really good, if you have like a diabetes or stuff like that, you can just blend up the aloe vera with water, but it's going to be very bitter and it's not going to taste good. But with the, with the orange juice, it's a bit more palatable. I think I'm saying that word correctly. And the other thing I want to mention, I don't know if this was um, said in the news, um, but what I've observed recently, I've been seeing something with Deshaun Jackson. I think they said, quote unquote, he made some anti-Semitic remarks and uh, he apologized. And I think recently Nick Cannon uh, made some remarks and he apologized, and they also said that those were anti-Semitic remarks. Um, and after those remarks were made by those two non-white males, I've been seeing uh, the discourse in the news where they're saying that black people are racist towards Jews. And I'm curious if anybody has observed that. And that's all I have to uh, say for now. Thanks. Much obliged. You are blocking your blessings with the cotton candy grapes. They are amazing. Uh, it's been some years since I've had cotton candy. 
Uh, so I won't say they taste exactly like cotton candy, but I think they're named that way. Uh, they're named as cotton candy grapes one because they are extremely sweet. Like, wow. Like all you'd have to do is eat one and it would immediately stand out. Like these are substantially sweeter than most grapes. And it's, uh, it's almost like that artificial, like cotton candy type of sweetness, like that really, uh, almost kind of a tart, uh, sweetness, uh, like with, I was thinking like cotton candy or some other, some other candies, uh, that children have frequently, but yeah, cotton candy, that's, that's kind of the sweetness, but they are amazing. They, uh, yeah, if you can get the organic ones, they are amazing. Um, yeah. Anyway, talk about those all day. The anti-Semitism, we talked about that yesterday, a retired firefighter, uh, brought it up. Uh, which only again reminded me the problem is individuals classified as white, nothing else. Uh, that would solve a whole lot of those problems. And we talked about this seems to be a generational thing where they haul out some black person, particularly during an election year, as anti Semitic. Jesse Jackson, Minister Louis Farrakhan. I mentioned Jeremiah right before. They didn't say he was anti Semitic, but kind of similar uh it's a lot professor griff uh it's very very frequent uh where they will pull out some black person and oh he's an anti-semite and boom we got to call him names or call her names and all the rest of it again a lot of that could be avoided the problem is individuals classified as white but yes i have seen that uh very common seems to be a part of the election year cycle uh other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have comments on her question about the so-called anti-semitism uh or what else has been mentioned proceed may i be heard yes sir uh yes greetings callers and listeners and uh thank you again gus for the platform um the food um aspect as far as changing your uh diet i I think is a really one of the best things that we could focus in on. And um, I found that for myself and for my family is going to bed at a decent time on a consistent basis really helps in that aspect. Um, you don't stay up late um, snacking on things past a certain time. Um, you kind of do, you kind of get to wake up early and feel more like replenished after you um, get that rest. Um, so that's one of the biggest things that I realized is that if I stay up late doing the Netflix thing and anything else um, that I may have on the table is that, or not on the table, but yeah, literally on the table, I'll, um, I'll find myself snacking on things throughout the night. And that's just a bad habit to develop in the process because you're usually not eating anything good. Um, the other aspect is when waking up, I do have a, a warm glass of lemon water uh, for breakfast. And that's pretty much my breakfast as a whole. Um, fluids, uh, cheese, burdock tea, dandelion, all these things that are good for iron and good for your blood, um, I try to stick to. And um, Dr. Um, I'm like, I, I'm, I apologize. I forgot. Her, what, I'm sorry. I forgot her name, Gus. I, did, I think it was Dr. Nathan. Dr. Layton. Layton, yes. Um, she mentioned something about sea moss, and I asked her, previously about the powdered version and the actual gel and she she stuck with the gel and I actually went out and found the actual sea moss 
and the gel, and that has been when, when blended in with the smoothies. Um, I could feel and see the difference. Um, I suffer from eczema, and since I've been doing the sea moss with the gel, the actual um, seaweed itself, it, it's done its job. It's doing a lot. You know, it's been helping me out a lot with my skin. Um, those are some of the things. I think everything else, I mean, working out, obviously, just basic walking and things like that are very important. But the rest is is really, really critical um, way to start off. Um, as for my area, I'm in the metropolitan area. There have been more and more protests in Brooklyn. They ride around, and I was spoke to you about this uh, last week about bike ride protests. I saw this again this week. Um, I didn't participate. Um, also, you know, just standing in front of Prospect Park, the park that we have here that's a big park in Brooklyn, they just stand there and protest and yell out and scream and hold their signs. I'm not sure what they're trying to accomplish. I didn't go up to anybody and really get into any questions. Um, I was bike riding with my offspring, so I try to keep it um, like that. But I'm glad he's able to see these functions, and he himself is asking questions like, what do they expect to do, and what do they expect this to the outcome to be? you know, at 14 years old. I'm really happy that he's at least acknowledging the senseless of it, senselessness of it. Um, also, this is workplace racism uh, real quick, is I had a discussion on uh, in a meeting about the spike in Florida of the COVID cases, and I said that I was kind of surprised that they are, even though the spike is going on, they're going to open up schools and the governor's pushing for that. I think he's been may have a lot more pushback as things progress. Immediately, um, a white person, person classified as white, jumped on and said, "You know, this is, you know, our children need to be interacting. They need to be social. You know, schools have to open. We need to do this, and um, the emotional damage that it's going to cause if they don't socialize." And immediately, I thought back to other broadcast that you've had in speaking with people about um, whites and how they treat their offspring. And it's, it's so indicative and it's so consistent. They really don't give a damn about their kids, their children. And, and you could, when I heard him spitting this jargon about their emotional health, my first thought is, so you're willing to risk their lives over their emotional health. And let's be quite frank, nobody's saying that the children can't socialize. You can go out and hang out with your son and throw a football. You can spend time with him because you're at home. You can spend time with the child yourself for one summer. I don't think that's going to hurt. But I was just blown away. And, and the thing that really got me was the fact that other people on the line, I'm talking 20 to 25 people, mostly everybody was agreeing with him. And... um I just, I just realizing more and more how I have to be more protective over my son and my offspring in regards to this because this is just, um, it's a toxic environment and it's going to continue to be so. Um, that's all I have for today. I'll uh, leave my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Dr. Ruby Lathan. Visit her website. She has great information, veggie starter kit, recipes. Lots of tips, uh, supplements and things. Uh, she talked about some of that information in her many uh, visits to the cows. Uh, and it's on her website as well. You can follow her on uh, IG and all the rest of it, social media and all. 
but yes, lots of resources. So glad to hear people exercise. Super important exercise, walking, something. Find something you enjoy. Dance. We heard that from uh, Bien Toronto. Said she dropped like 15 pounds, probably more than that by now. Get some exercise in and eating well. And that's so critical uh, what you shared about getting rest. Uh, I think someone asked me, and that was a big part of me getting rid of a a lot of my tub. Uh, I did the same thing. Now, I didn't just eat poor foods, hot dogs and, you know, Funyuns, all the rest of it. Uh, but, but being up late, one o'clock in the morning to generally when it's let's go and raid the refrigerator. It's two thirty in the morning. It's generally not time to go and yeah. get bok choy and carrots and snow peas at two thirty. Generally, then ooh, ice no. cream, Funyun, Cheetos, ooh. They taste the best at 2.30 in the morning. And potato chips and just everything that's terrible. And even regardless, that's not really a quality time to eat. Like your body is generally in rhythm with the sun. Like rest is important. Get that rest. That can mess up your metabolism a lot of times too when you are not resting and or you are eating at times when your body thinks you should be sleeping. Oh man, that can really mess things up not to mention when you do fall asleep now you're going to sleep with all that food that you just ate and you should have a regulated time of when you eat that was all that to say they had i remember distinctly hearing a report it was on npr it was right after my residence flooded we weren't on the air and they said they had done research and it showed that if you people who stopped eating at like we'll say 10 p.m. I might be off a little bit but it was like 10 p.m. people who stopped eating at 10 p.m. didn't eat anything until uh, the next morning like 8 a.m. or somewhere around there lost a lot of weight they kept it off people who had an even we'll say stricter uh, we'll call it uh, time frame in terms of eating so let's say if they only had, I think it was a 12 hour window. That was it. So your, what didn't matter when, but you only eat food from for 12 hours. You only have 12 hours that you eat. So it could be 10 AM to 10 PM. It could be 8 AM to 8 PM, whatever. But those are your 12. Once that period is done, no more eating until the next day when you start your 12 hours again, they said folks in that group did very well, not just losing weight, keeping it off the main point was you don't eat all day long and you definitely do not eat at night stop all the meal things should be stopping shouldn't be any much later than about 10 p.m might you know vary a little bit if you have a later work schedule type of thing but yeah get that rest and no late night eating that is really really bad particularly as you get older like you might might be able to get away with a little bit of that when you are you know 15 and very active but woof that is not something that you want to continue because even then it can catch up with you real quick uh, if something happens and you're not as active for a little while like that late eating is horrible uh, other folks that we've missed totally mm-hmm. uh, proceed Um, Gus, may I ask a question about the grapes? <laughs> Cotton candy grapes, yes, ma'am. Um, I'm just wondering. Uh, it sounds like 
I mean, has anybody checked to see if they're G, uh, GMO or not? Because I, I do know sometimes they crossbreed grapes and other fruits um, for a desired taste effect, but I'm just wondering if anybody looked into it because I've never heard anyone describe a grape like you did. <laughs> uh, I could be in error. I'll get you in a second, Thomas, in New York. Uh, I could be in error, but I do not think these are genetically uh, modified. They have these at the um, fancy organic produce stores, plural, uh, out here. Uh, One, I think also I was talking uh, because they have all the wacky different uh, watermelons out here too, the orange ones and yellow ones. Uh, They have like a hundred different types of watermelon. We generally only see like one or two, the pink ones. Uh, That's another aspect of white supremacy racism where they just have the food industry just has like very standard uh, produce where you don't get to see all the different types. That's why I posted a picture of a purple tomato. Uh, on my Facebook and people were kind of wigging out like what in the world uh, they call them heirloom the heirloom seeds where you have lots because they have lots of different types of produce so I think there are lots of different types of uh, grapes I don't think the cotton candy grapes is genetically modified but I could be an heir uh, let's see Thomas in New York thank you for your patience great thank you guys for all the callers um, rest in peace to Representative John Lewis, um, a dedicated United States civil servant, um, jobless, a jobless society, cashless society, meatless society. They're all in Agenda 21 UN papers. Uh, cotton candy grapes are classified as designer foods. Uh, they're made by a company called Grapery. Um, I had um, talked about those um, before, but yeah, totally genetically modified. In fact, if you look them up, they'll tell you the person that made them. It's like two people, white people. Um, I think they started in California, um, but the company's called Grapery. Um, and um, they're called Designer Foods, just like you have the Designer Weed now, you know, Versace Haze or something, you know, they call it Designer, and it's, it has a um, GMO-type quality to the, uh, when you do the research on it. Uh, and a lot of the meatless alternatives, they trade on the NASDAQ. These are tech companies. Uh, a lot of the big food companies have bought some of the smaller tech companies and implemented those products to their team. But those are um, tech companies that make that food. They're not food companies. Uh, women being raped in the army. I recall, I think I read somewhere, they say booty is the spoils of war. Uh, to me, women should not be in a situation like that, especially around a bunch of men, especially um, men generally tend to try to get the alpha and certain things when you're around a bunch of men that women shouldn't just, um, I can see how that can cause uh, very difficult situations for women, especially when they're not in abundance, you know, they're seriously outnumbered. Um, and, um, yeah, I feel bad for them. I just don't think that that's the situation they should be in. Um, especially what happens if they get caught by the enemy soldiers. You know, that's always been my thing. Like, that's that's a definite rate of multiple rape. Maybe every soldier in their barracks gets a chance to rape the enemy soldier. It just doesn't seem logical. I, I just don't understand why white people did it. I mean, I understand, but, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, Donald Trump. Um, 
wants to send children back to school in two months. He's being ridiculed uh, by um, people because of the health risk. And mostly I'm looking at it in the media and other politicians, but they don't say anything about these mass protests that are still going on, where people are together without masks, shaking hands with police, being escorted through the streets. You know, at least they still are in New York. Why isn't the Blasio um, mad at the protests? You know, it just doesn't make sense. It's definitely an agenda there. Um, guns and arms industry is certainly not the only industry seeing all-time highs. The stock exchange is seeing record highs in almost every sector. You know, stocks like Tesla and Amazon are breaking records. Uh, and all that while we have an unprecedented unemployment, a pandemic, and in the middle of civil unrest, you know, uh, no jobs and the stock market is shooting up. So it's not just guns. It's, it's something else going on. Um, Gus, I thought of you when I saw this. I was watching a bunch of promos this week. The Bronco is back. Um, Ford Bronco is back. Prior to OJ, Bronco was the second most purchased large automobile to the F-150. And um, Ford has bought it back. Uh, they discontinued the car because OJ and AC's um, trip down um, the highway. And um, the next year, they said they're not making it anymore. But I even checked on it. It comes in Oxford white. So I, if I'm black, I don't know if I'll buy a white uh, Bronco. Um, people are boycotting Goya. Um, and the CEO simply just praised the president. And this is what they call cancel culture. Um, this is... You know, you talk about fascism and communism. I mean, the end of the First Amendment, uh, boycotting people over saying something that's 100% not offensive to anyone or just for praising someone that's on the, that's um, not popular in the overall society. Or to disagree with someone, you get boycotted or canceled now. It's just um, the start of the 100% compliant society they're trying to put in place where your behaviors dictate your place in society. And, of course, us being black, we already gonna have a bad place where we starting off at. Um, Nick Cannon, uh, I feel bad for him. He was trying to gain an understandable white supremacy and trying to share some information with blacks. Uh, I think he could have um, been a little bit more proficient. Uh, when you're making statements in a public place like that on that platform, he could have said everything he said. He just had to attach a white person to it. Uh, or a black person. So he attached Dr. Wells into one of his comments, which, you know, white people want to argue, hey, I was just quoting a doc. And, you know, he could have quoted um, Michael Bradley <laughs> if he wanted to call white people savages from the Caucasus Mountains. That would have been very easy. You know, just quote Michael Bradley's book. He got plenty of quotables in the Iceman inheritance that you can use. And, you know, white people argue with him. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll say my last comment. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. People will find, start doing information on food. Very common. You will research. You'll find five articles that will say fat is good. You'll find five that will say fat is bad. Same thing with the cotton candy grapes. Now, NPR, they reported in 2013 
at about $6 a pound. This sounds like a lucrative gimmick, and they are generally kind of pricey. Uh, that takes a perfectly pleasant fruit and jazz zit up into junk food, but when we dug deeper into the grape's origins, we found that its creator is actually trying to do the opposite. Horticulturist David Kane wants to bring back the natural flavor of our grapes, which have been stripped away by decades of breeding fruit to withstand shipping and storage, not to please our taste buds. When you go to the supermarket, there's like 15 kinds of apples, Fuji, Pink, Lady, Gala, Brayburn, the list goes on. Kane tells the salt, we want to give consumers the same array of flavors for grapes. And he's doing it without genetic engineering or artificial flavors. Just good old fashioned plant breeding Kane and his team at international fruit genetics in Bakersville, California, long growth season made the cotton candy grape by hybridizing two different grape species. Uh, so NPR says this is not GMO, but if you look online, same thing I said about fat, there'll be some folks who say this is crazy and it is genetically modified. And there's some folks who say it isn't. So you just have to do more research and come to your own conclusion. And, uh, you could probably do some work, I guess, if you really want to trace. They encourage trace the source, place where you see cotton candy grapes or any other produce. See if you can go and track back to the farm. Maybe you could even go and chat with them. They have a lot of local uh, produce here, so that would be something that would be feasible. Well, now with the Rona, probably not. But before all that, you probably could could go and ask them some questions, see if they could help satisfy your curiosity. Others that we miss totally, proceed. Can I bear uh, Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, in regards to the recording about gun sales being up during mass shootings, yes, I've, I've, I've never heard of that before, and I think that was kind of weird when when they said that. Um, gun sales did go up when Obama got elected, but that was with white people. And overall gun sales did go up when President Trump uh, was also president. Uh, I'm assuming white people wanted to get guns so they could be deputized to kill black folks. And I, I'm, I'm assuming black folks uh, probably got guns because of the fact that they understood that uh, white people were uh, were going to be deputized by the president to, you know, go out and kill them. So, uh, and then I think you did a report last. Uh, there was a report that uh, that you had played last year in regards to the uptick of um, black people in gun clubs. So, but what was the, what what's interesting and what I'm finding is that uh, ammo is, you know, being scarce now. Uh, and I know it started with the Rona. Um, you know, actually, you know, you can still buy a gun. Well, particularly around here, you could still buy a gun, but it's the ammo that you can't buy uh, because the ammo is uh, either sold out or, you know, white people won't sell them to you. Yeah, they'll sell you a gun, but, you know, if you don't have any ammo, then, you know, what use is the gun? And um, I kind of agree with uh, Irie's point earlier in regards to uh, having a gun for defense, but I also see your point, Gus, in regards to uh, it, you know, if you're not being codified with it, uh, maybe causing more problems. And I say this because I find that some some people, especially non-white black people, purchase a gun and they don't use it they just buy it and put it in their in their house and they don't go out to the gun range and, and learn how to shoot it and i think that is a that's a huge mistake 
you know, if you purchase something like that, you should be able to learn how to use it, fire it. Um, uh, like I, you know, like you said before, uh, do it in a codified way. Uh, it is not, you know, to be used as, you know, something to go and brandish in, in public and, you know, claim that, you know, you, you have a gun and everything like that. It should be, uh, as last resort, uh, for, uh, for self-defense. So, um, I do believe that, you know, as many black people should have that particular type of uh, weapon as a last resort for self-defense. Um, Lori Lightfoot uh, has been in the news uh, here, particularly in Chicago and on the international stage. Uh, the press secretary uh, the other day called her the derelict mayor of Chicago, and Lori responded back with the, you know, Karen, you know, Karen comment. Uh, and then uh, today, uh, John Cantanzara, the new president of the uh, Chicago Fraternal Order of Police sent a letter to President Donald Trump uh, in regards to requesting more help for the Chicago uh, Police Department. Uh, John Cantanzara uh, is a avid Trump supporter, and he is the president of the FOP here. Uh, and I think basically this kind of all stems from uh, her comments that she made uh, a couple of days ago in regards to uh, uh, maybe rolling back uh, to phase three in regards to the uh, reopening of Chicago. Now, Chicago and Illinois has been relatively okay with the numbers of coronavirus cases. Uh, you know, we've we've had a slight uptick, but it's not in the it's not in the sense of the southern states of like Louisiana and Florida and Georgia. But we've been relatively been steady. And she also uh, made it mandatory for anybody coming from those states, those red states, that they have to quarantine 14 days. So if you're coming from Louisiana or Georgia or Florida, you must quarantine. If you're coming to Chicago, you must quarantine 14 days. And I, I believe this is a backlash from the White House to, you know, to kind of embarrass her. Uh, and then also to the uh, John Cantanzara, who's a avid Trump supporter. Uh, this is kind of like a backlash towards her as well. Uh, well, obviously, you know he he doesn't he doesn't like you know he's a he's a race soldier anyway. So uh, that that was kind of. But I think a lot of this uh, is is just due to the fact that you know she she laid down that order, and then also too she she said that there is a possibility that we could roll back because. In Chicago, the beaches are not open. She has not opened the beaches yet. And I think a lot of, especially a lot of white people have, have been very upset about that. But our corona cases have been, been pretty decent. So uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, victim of racism and also in a tragic relationship, uh, has been, I mean, she and the governor of Illinois, uh, uh, J.B. Pritzker, uh, have been together in regards to this uh, corona uh, virus thing, uh, unlike some of the uh, mayors and governors, uh, like, for instance, in Georgia. I think uh, the governor of Georgia is trying to sue the mayor of Atlanta uh, <laughs> for wearing, you know, for forcing the Atlanta residents to wear masks. Uh, well, that's not happening up here, so uh, which, is, which is good. So I, I, can, uh, I can appreciate that. 
you know, even though there's still, you know, the, the highest number of corona cases are still in the in the non-white black community, but like I said, overall corona cases have been going, have been steady, and the deaths actually have been have been uh, uh, steady as well. Like uh, yesterday, we only had 18 deaths in the whole state of Illinois, which is a far cry from what we were experiencing in April with like 500, you know, per day. So uh, that's been uh, steady. Uh, and I think uh, I had something else, but I forgot about it. But I'll leave it there. I'm in my life. Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. Hope you, wife, staying safe, hands washed, keeping everybody safe. I think Far Cry is a metaphor, but anywho, um, I think it was predicted that things were going to be bad in the South. So, uh, the and black mayors, wow, derelict mayor in Chicago, mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta. Now she tested positive for the Rona. I think as did her husband, who is still uh, he hasn't recovered yet. Her husband. Uh, she is being sued by the governor, and it was something. Oh, she got. The, we just had the report. That's where we got the segment. The sickness is white supremacy. Andrew Young told her that after she was threatened and called a nigger. Uh, for requesting that citizens of Atlanta, you know, hey, let's have our restrictions. Let's wear a mask. Let's do social distancing. Try to curb the virus uh, since it's causing such a problem uh, here in Georgia and Atlanta specifically. They got a lot of folks with uh, comorbidities, uh, as they say. But I said, man, she has had a tough summer. Uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, and it continued. I mean, how do you get sued by the governor? saying we should we should wear masks seems like that might be helpful Woo, man do not want to be mayor uh, other folks that we missed totally if you have commentary proceed greetings can I be heard retired firefighter yes sir greetings Gus greetings to uh, everyone uh I have been hearing, which I would uh, state and or admit is my uh, greatest personal weakness, which is uh, food intake, uh, the wrong food intake. Uh, Primarily, uh, I'm addicted to sugar uh, and results of pastries. Uh, and, uh, still consuming meat. Uh, I am aware of the dangers, uh, but because of the habit, uh, I still practice it, uh, uh, which is something that I have to, uh, personally overcome. Uh, Although I do have an understanding and idea of what is considered to be uh, healthy foods. I just have to uh, keep working at uh, the uh, commitment and sincerity uh, into uh, being consistent. Uh, No problem with uh, what is called uh, exercise and or conditioning. 
It's been a part of my uh, uh, life practice, I can say, as far back as uh, early teens from athletics on a formal level. Uh, and uh, I've always retained, retained that habit uh, year in and year out. Uh, to whereas even now with this pandemic, uh, I am normally formally doing something regards to exercise six out of seven days out of the week. Uh, so that's not really a problem. Uh, Self-protection, firearms, even before that particular subject comes up, there is a lot of of uh, practice that one can do in terms of security uh, that uh, would uh, render yourself and those who deserve it uh, to uh, be in a safe, safe environment from uh, physical harm from another person. The the First and foremost thing is to separate yourself from other people unless you have something constructive to say and do in regards to with that person or persons. Now, uh, you may not be able to have control over uh, others who may be in that same atmosphere, but I would, I would suggest that you have a plan of when you leave your abode on what you're, what you're leaving for, what are you, uh, what's the objective to obtain, whether it's an object or some kind of contact with another person. If you have that kind of planning, then you're probably going to avoid a lot of things that are unexpected. Uh, if you do purchase a firearm, make sure that you, as I heard a previous caller, uh, practice, just like any other object that lies within your hand reach, if you don't practice on it, you're probably not going to be very proficient at it. You know, whatever it is, turning on the, turning on the washing machine, uh, cooking something, or whatever, you know, you're not going to be good at it if you don't make it out of a practice. So that would be a good thing to do. Uh, I was uh, I had a uh, uh, unusual experience during the week was in the grocery store and uh, was approached by a black male uh, handing me a business card. And what it was, it was from a uh, a, uh, a a concealed weapon uh, opportunity, and I asked him, was he the uh, proprietor and he said yes and I but I asked him a question and somebody brought this up a, a few calls before myself uh, I said I have never heard of a non-white black person that's a gunsmith in other words just like any other machine a firearm is in uh, a lot of it needs a lot of care to be proficient, cleaning, uh, repairing, uh, 
if something goes wrong on, at the moment, you would know how to immediately uh, solve the problem. And that's what a gunsmith is for. And that's why I asked them, do, are you aware, or do you know of any gunsmiths, black gunsmiths? And he, he said, no. I said, and he said, that's something to think about. I, I, I said, because I, said, I asked him, do you think it's a necessity? You know, and uh, I think that may be also included on why, uh, there's many reasons, but also a reason why white people don't mind selling us firearms. It's because of the limit, the limit, uh, the limited uh, effectiveness of what it would have by non-white black people having something that is already obsolete uh, to harming white people uh, in a faction of of uh, of uh, uh, the global system of racism, white supremacy, and also from the standpoint of they don't know how to repair the tool anyway, let alone talking about, quote-unquote, making projectiles called bullets. So uh, those are some things to think about. Uh, I concur with uh, the reports on uh, Mr. Cannon, uh, the young fellow who is a employee with the National Football League, and yet they also are also working on Allen Iverson because of a photograph he took with uh, the Honorable uh, 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 Minister Farrakhan uh, three years ago, uh, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I would say stay on the path of white people uh, as far as uh, from a standpoint of uh, illustration of who who is the uh, practitioner of the system of racist white supremacy. Uh, you know, white people are the problem, and uh, that's all I have to say. Thank, thank everybody for listening. Much obliged, retired firefighter. They have, uh, I think, the image in question uh, where Alan Iverson uh, is... <laughs> being upbraided for uh, it's with Minister Farrakhan and it just says I didn't choose to be black I just got lucky exclamation point three of them VGQ to Allen Iverson but you know uh, there's no such thing there's nothing lucky about being classified as black in a system of racism white supremacy it certainly is not lucky and if it were not for the grace of Governor Doug Wilder, we would have never known Island Iverson. He would have just been that Negro who uh, hit a white girl at the bowling alley and went to jail for a whole lot of years. And that would have been that. Lucky to be black. Lucky Doug Wilder was governor, first black governor of the state of Virginia. Carry me back to old Virginia. Anyway, but that's all the post says. Like, bucket list moment. Love conquers hate. Good defeats evil. That's it. I didn't choose to be black. I just got lucky. That's something to be upset. That's the most offensive thing, really, that I see with the whole post, like him being with another victim of racism. Like, we're going to bring that up again. Like I told I just mentioned Minister Farrakhan. I just said that they will wheel out him. And didn't he he what he said 20 years ago? Come on. Come on. And then you took a photograph with him. You didn't endure. Embarrassing. And then he has to come out and do the same thing. 
I renounce, I denounce, I reject, I repudiate Minister Farrakhan. I'll call him a coon if you need to. Like, come on, come on, come on. Uh, incidentally, uh, in a system of racism, white supremacy, uh, just following logic, I don't think anyone should be referred to as honorable. I don't know what that term means, but I don't think you can be honorable if you are a racist. I don't think you can be honorable if you are subject to racists. That should be like, because they say they'll talk about judges, right? They'll be talking about like uh, Jerry Epstein's homies and whatnot. And the honorable. Like, no. We should just the person's name and that's that. Like nobody is honorable in a system of white supremacy racism. Just my view. VG. Right on. Uh other folks that we miss totally. May I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus the host, the listeners and callers. Um, two of the audio segments I was thinking about, the one where I think they were talking about the race soldiers being transferred, I guess, or trying to go to another state, and the guy was working on some kind of um, way to uh, to impede that or to stop that from happening. Uh, there was a, a portion where the guy, he was being very deceitful, I think, Um he, I, I guess you can say it was a metaphor where he says, hey, you know, I understand uh, the only thing that the only person that doesn't like a bad cop is a good cop. I caught that one. You know, I, you know, I wanted to know what does that even really mean? So, you know, nothing to show the difference, I guess. Um, and then he was saying about the due process, but he made it seem that he was so uh, certain about if a person has that in their history, then they would know that. And he said, well, you know, I guess because of budgets and everything, we didn't want to, we just forget to check it. I, I just think that's just uh, being deceitful and telling lies. I think you just hire somebody on. But once again, the quote from uh, Mr. Fuller's white people don't get fired. They get transferred. Um, and in the uh, time period of COVID-19, a uh, a racist, white supremacist strangling a uh, a non-white child like that, just absolutely just total aggression and hostility, no precaution or nothing. Um, and there's some reports uh, from here in Florida that I like to share. Uh, there's a black male running for sheriff here in the county and all of a sudden there's a news report earlier on around six o'clock that showed his son being arrested for stalking someone or whatever or or having a a restraining order placed on him uh, by a female so the way that they introduced it was oh well the son of (laughs) the son of the person that's uh, running for the county sheriff. I said, uh, that's, that's very interesting, the timing of that. And this, and they said, this is something that happened back in April or April or May or something, but we're almost at August. 
so I thought that was suspicious. Um, and the arrogance is continuing to increase the uh, white supremacist, racist mentality uh, being practiced. There was a report where I think people have heard about this. There was a 30-year-old, I guess. I don't know if this was a person classified as white, but he was calling it a hoax. Uh, like this isn't real or anything like that. It's been reported that the person that said, uh, you know, I made a mistake. Oh man, I made a mistake. And the person passed away. And you have, there was two white people going around handing out free masks in public, um, trying to, I guess, get people to wear a mask. The one being angry at nobody or nothing. White person, uh, at the beach saying, Hey, I don't believe in that. And you know, if you want some, you can come over here and get some this on <laughs> this in front of everybody, like total aggression, entitlement, racism. And my last one is, uh, Baker County courthouse. I think it's in McClenney, Florida. I looked it up, um, 20 years ago. Well, no 19, excuse me. They painted a mural of the KKK and this is inside their courthouse. So they've been in contact with the uh, eighth judicial circuit judge to, um, to get a comment on trying to find a way to, I guess, remove this mural. So they've been having protests about that. Um, but that's something I learned today that that's directly in the courthouse lobby in Baker County. Uh, and that's all I have for now. Thanks for allowing me to share. That is amazing. Uh, <laughs> I, that is that would move way up my list of examples of white supremacy monuments symbols that I would not want changed ever. There is a KKK mural inside the courthouse I thought it was supposed to be Lady Lib- I mean Lady Justice with the blindfold and all she can't see that's oh man you have got to be joking I am looking at the image now oh my goodness you have got yeah I would you have got to leave this up forever and ever as long as there's a system of white supremacy oh man mm. This would be all the motivation you need when they talk about black people having a code. I don't break any laws like from the time you are three years low. Well, you can choose to follow the laws or you can be a lawbreaker. That's the courthouse. There you go. Anytime it even looks like you might be a lawbreaker. Hey, you know where you're going. I don't go to the courthouse because you see, you see beautiful understanding of what rights are. Don't ever change it. Don't. That's a song. Don't ever change. <laughs> like I'd be telling the pro- protest anything. Just do not take that picture down ev- at the courthouse. <laughs> Man, what in the world? Uh, the, the Florida, incredible. And they wonder why the virus is surging. Governor DeSantis. Uh, and they thought a black guy was going to win the governorship. In Fl- Come on, come on, come on. Uh, the what did he say? The fella he said the only person that doesn't like bad cops is a good cop. I don't know what that means either. 
I just had the ponderance. Like I have, I couldn't give a guess. Nothing. <laughs> Metaphors consistently. The metaphors, uh, the white hostility. That's what I've said is so many examples of that. White people coming out aggressively for no reason. Would you like a mask? No, sir. Or you could ignore the person. What mask? I'll beat you. Get out of my face. Who do you think? That's what I mean about be alert. That sort of thing is so con. It was you heard we played the report. Uh, where they're still trying to find the graves of black people, right? White hostility. Can't even find all the black people that they killed. 300 at least. Could have been more. Black male, uh, reverend no less, he's out, he's got his mask on, he's got his sign. This is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This happened like within the last day or so. He's uh, has a sign up for reparations. White guy. There's a protest. It's a whole mob of them. They're coming to protest the Rona. They said, ain't no Rona. Forget the mass. That's, you know, you're not going to push me around. I'm a white man. I'm a white woman. I do what I want. Uh, so they see this black guy and say, what? what? What are you doing out here? This is some nonsense. And they start jumping in his face, breathing on him all hard. I said, man, like, you, I'm out protesting, trying to get reparations for white terrorism a century ago. You don't believe the Rona exists. Fine. Why do you have to go and breathe real close and get nasty and hostile with a black male victim of racism. I mean, very, very dangerous times uh, in the system. Got to be vigilant. Did we miss anyone? Anyone that didn't get to share it all? Hello, Gus. Ivy, um, yes, ma'am. I want to say something real quick. Um, I agree with a retired firefighter about what he said about um, the lack of um, uh Servicers for repairs for weapons, um, the lack of maybe even um, non-white owned ranges or, you know, shooting galleries or whatever. Um, I did find uh, one that was non-white where not, well, it's about an hour and a half from where I am. And if a person feels like they're willing to do that travel and research to find something like that, they should. I'm not suggesting that owning a firearm arm is going to solve the problem of encountering a racist or anyone if they decide to pursue direct violence. The only thing I'm wondering is, is it the fear in us for, you know, however long of, you know, basically thinking about getting firearms or, you know, just, I just know that we are currently in a situation in which we are literally being hunted by whomever uh, feels qualified. If I was that lady and that man put his hands on my son, I'll I, I put it this way. I would have retaliated. I'm not saying that there wouldn't have been consequences to that retaliated, but I just know me and I feel like, if anything, we should be more codified in our actions and start learning how to take these weapons apart, put them together, repair them, so that way, yes, we can start going to non-white black people for these needed, uh, you know, things and maintenance. But I don't think it's a good solution to not get armed or or, or get some type of burst in self-defense because we're out here, especially these women and children, just just ready and available for these race soldiers 
to come and assault and kill us. And I'm just, I just want, I want the solution. You know, I want the end of white supremacy at the end of the day. And please, you know, I'm a victim. And I'm speaking out of fear as well, well, telling people to get weapons. And that's why I own them. Because I'm afraid because of what they've done. But, you know, we all want the same thing. Just everybody just pursue due diligence and do what you feel is necessary to maintain yourself and your family. And always remember the first, um, the first uh, law of weapon safety is never point a weapon you don't intend to shoot. So with that said, if you pull out your firearm, you must be like like Mr. Fuller says, and anyone else would agree, ready to accept whatever comes after that. And um, thank you. Good night. Yes, ma'am. Irie in Louisiana. Um, hey, self defense. That's you know natural. Uh, and I am not a parent, so. But certainly anyone seeing I'm, just me hearing it was striking. So I cannot even imagine uh, being a parent. Um, and just to make sure I got in for detail, the time for exiting would have been before your child is being strangled. The time for exiting, because I think uh, they said there was some uh, verbal abuse before it got to that point. That's what I mean about it. as soon as they look like they're even signs of this type of thing this outing is done and that we can be talking about why if he's pursuing or anything we go to a public location called the police but I mean yeah this outing is done we're just you know trying to get to safety uh, and hopefully we can get additional resources help to get him away from us but yeah trying to get out of those situations it's nothing to talk about nothing to discuss that's one of those like I said with delivery drivers wouldn't even get out of the vehicle just calling for enforcement officials but yeah like once once it gets to the strangle point like oh yeah you know you self-defense whatever you deem is necessary at that point like i can't i don't even know like what they didn't give enough detail about how things you know what happened between that point and when the police got there to take him away in handcuffs but it is extremely dangerous talk to your children if you have offspring this is a time speak to them in detail it's so many it's every week at least two of these two or three of these reports are uh, pretty young people you know Uh, the firecracker incidents last week I think they were six seven really really young Uh, the incident we had the young lady uh, they uh, pounded on her vehicle she was like 17 years old talk to your children uh, it's really, really dangerous. Let them know so that uh, hopefully nothing will happen. This will just be, you know, precaution. Uh, but if something happens, you know, the training will kick in and they can do exactly what you talk with them about to keep themselves safe and get themselves out of that situation unharmed. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow. Global Sunday talk on racism. 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Looking forward hearing from our guests from around the world. White Dog Session 2 coming up this Thursday. Much obliged to everyone for tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need our brain. I mean, man, even if you didn't have a child, just you could be by yourself. But imagine that type of scenario unfolds. You got some race soldier mad about whatever parking spot or whatever 
and they're going to attack you you're not sober and trying to process what to do what to say how to get out of that predicament we need our brain computer metaphor working at optimum efficiency in addition to being sober I would say let's stay at home a lot of reasons uh, to be about hunkering down avoiding large groups crowds and such I wouldn't scuffle with anyone about masks either because there's been so many of those incidents uh, of that being caused like said something to be about a mask and I'm not going to wear one and I got a gun that says you're not going to make me wear one like I would they had a whole report I thought about sharing that they had a whole report about you know whether to say something not say something how to approach those situations I would probably if we're in a public setting I would probably go to security or whoever the employees are and have them enforce the mask policy as opposed to doing it yourself that way if there's an escalation it's not with you it's with the staff and they should be trained they'll have a code and they'll have help resources walkie talkie and everything to get help to get that extinguished immediately you don't anyway but if something looks like it's escalating like I said it would immediately be about exiting that situation like let's get out of here right now if you need to call enforcement officials do so if it seems like the person is following you I wouldn't go to the residence I would just try to go to a public location call the enforcement officials stay in the vehicle but yeah this this outing is done not taking any chances way too dangerous uh, if you've done all that you're sober you're going to go out it seems safe you're buckled up Psh, you're not on the cell phone one we're being vigilant all our attention is focused on what's happening around us Two, minimize any chances of unnecessary contact with race soldiers badge or no that's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.